Hi there, welcome, and thank you for tuning in. My name is Jason Shoulder, and this is Learning to Fail. My guest today is Adil Palkivala. Adil is a master yogi, originally from India, now lives in Bellevue, Washington, with his wife Savitri, and a whole community of people who really have dedicated themselves to learning the art of Purna Yoga, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but it's pretty close. Pretty, pretty, pretty close. Uh, Adil is an amazing man. I have known him since 2009. I was introduced to him by a woman who was working as a liaison to ambassadors for Lululemon. This is before we all knew how evil Lululemon was. They were just a cool company that was getting bigger and cooler and cooler and bigger. And Adil was one of their ambassadors at one point. I don't know if they even have that program anymore. But this woman had fallen in love with my yoga eggs, 3minuteegg.com. And she said, if you, I met her in Florida at a yoga journal conference. And she said, are you going to the San Francisco conference? And if you are, I will introduce you to several yoga teachers there that are working with Lululemon. And she did that. Adil Palakivala and Jason Crandall and Julie Gamestadt. Adil and Jason both became uh, really strong ambassadors for the eggs, and Julie Gamestadt put the eggs in a closet and never looked at them again. <laughs> but I did take a workshop from her a few years later. She was very nice and a very good teacher, and she said she just didn't have it in her to put the time in to figure out what they were used for, but wished me the best with my endeavors, and that was fine. It was truly fine. Uh, two out of three wasn't bad. Jason single-handedly introduced the eggs to Japan, which is now where I sell almost as many eggs as I sell in America. And I've been there multiple times to teach, and I just have this incredible relationship with Japan now. I've eaten a ton of sushi there. I'm probably radioactive, and it was worth every bite of tuna. And Adil has studios all over the world. Uh, Purna Yoga Studios, he has one here in Asheville, uh, PY828. And it's run by my good friend, Letitia Walker, who is an amazing yoga teacher. And I met her, uh, I met her somewhere along the line when Adil was teaching in Clayton, North Carolina, which is outside Raleigh. And I had driven there with my teacher, Lila, and we went to study with Adil for the day and we had lunch. I had lunch with uh, my friend, Nicole, and Nicole's friend, Letitia. And that was the first time I met Letitia. And... I was very uh, apologetic, but I hadn't seen Nicole in a long time, and we just talked the whole time, and, and I I felt like I ignored Letitia, but I didn't mean to, and I acknowledged it, and she said, that's okay, I can tell you I haven't seen your friend. Anyway, long story short, haven't seen Nicole in years, Letitia and I are seriously good friends at this point, like, she's someone I really consider a close friend. And she now has her own yoga studio here in Asheville called PY828, and it's a Purna Yoga Studio, and Adil came here and taught uh, I think it was a year, either a year ago or two years ago. Um, while he was here, he and I sat down for a long-awaited interview. Ever since I started doing this podcast, I told him I wanted to interview him. We kept trying, and it never happened until the day that it did. And it was great, and it was so nice. Um, it's a very like low-key, really mellow, almost meditative podcast. Adil just, I don't know, he has that quality. He brings it out of me. You'll hear it. It's not my usual, like, I mean, it's upbeat, but it's not my usual, like, bang it out, kind of talk to a comic, fast-paced conversation. It's really pretty deep and meditative and talks about so many amazing things. I mean, the thing about Adil, and it comes out right in the first few minutes, 
He has done so much, and he has degrees. He has more degrees that he got before he was 20 than most people have in a lifetime of study, than most families have. He probably has studied and earned a degree in more subject matters than, like, if a family had five kids. So, anyway, I think you'll really enjoy learning from him. Uh, I think you'll enjoy the podcast. I want to thank Adil, not only for taking the time to do this, but for being such a good friend to me and a mentor and an incredible yoga teacher all these years. He actually invited me to Seattle to film his 200-hour yoga teacher training a number of years ago. I think it was, I'm trying to remember. I feel like it was 2012, but at this point, I have no sense of what happened when in life. But all I know is I went there for five weeks. I left my family and... I left my business and my people ran the business for me beautifully in my absence. It was back when I had people working for me full time and a whole crew and it was a very different world back then. And I went and filmed Adil's training and it was a really profound experience. It was not easy, by the way. Uh, Five weeks in a yoga studio, standing occasionally at a stool, Uh, some days were Eight hour, most days were eight hours, some days were four hours, and some days were 11 hours. And I just did whatever it was. Uh, I just charged them by the day, however much time they needed. And at the end of this five weeks, man, I was ready to go home. I mean, everybody was so burnt out, and so was I. But I hadn't been doing yoga every day. I had just been filming every day. But I had this incredible transformative experience. I mean, I really learned a lot and I felt almost like I'd taken another 200-hour training after that. I'd already done my 200-hour training twice because I didn't do enough of the reading. So I had to take the whole <laughs> I had to take the whole training two times just to learn what I could have learned if I'd read the book once. But uh, then I took a deals training and, and that was like taking an advanced 200-hour training. I had a really amazing training with Lila. And then when I went to a deals, it was like, wow, this is like this is really like a second level yoga training and, but he teaches it as his 200 and his 500 must be incredible. And he actually has a 2000 hour program. If you can believe it, I think it takes a year or two to complete and people go there for like 10 days at a time. And I mean, I can't imagine it. It's so, so intense. Just even being there for the month was intense. I can't imagine doing 2000 hours and it's, by the way, it's not all 2000 at once, but it is 1500. It's just weird yoga vernacular, but like whatever the number is of the training, that refers to how many hours you will have accumulated overall by the time you're done. So if you do a 200-hour training, you've done 200 hours. If you do a 500-hour training, you've done a 200 plus a 300. And if you do a 2,000-hour training, which as far as I know, Adil is the only person who offers it, then you've done a 200, a 300, and a 1,500. So that's the story on that. It's really great. Uh, if you're ever in Seattle, in the Seattle area, please go to Alive and Shine Yoga Centers in Bellevue and treat yourself to a class with anybody there. Any of the teachers, all the teachers are amazing. You cannot have a bad class at a Perna Yoga studio. And I have taken Perna Yoga everywhere from Asheville to Clayton to Helsinki, Finland, if you can believe it. Uh, when I was in Finland, one of my friends, well, I really know her, through, actually, she sold the studio, but they still use eggs. But uh, um, her name is Tuve Pomgren. I'm probably saying her name wrong. And she had this Perna Yoga studio in Helsinki. And when I was selling my eggs in Europe, I mean, I still sell them myself. And when I had a distributor in Europe, my distributor was in Helsinki, Finland. And they found the eggs at Tuve's studio. And 
that was because a deal came there and taught and they studied with him there. And when I, so when I sold them the eggs, they brought me there to train them and their teachers, which I did. And while I was there, I did a class at Tuve studio and that was really fun. And, and the other little aside with Tove, Tove, ah, when it, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm saying your name wrong. Tove maybe anyway, T O V E. And, and then it's just spelled differently because it's Finnish. Anyhow, uh, Tove was the person who introduced me to the dog breed, Lagotto Romagnolo, which is what my dog is. I ended up adopting one of these incredible dogs. I have a pretty funny, horrible joke about it that I do. It's several minutes long. I'm not going to do it for you right now. Although I did just do it over the phone for a friend because I posted on Facebook that I'm bored and restless. And if everybody, if anybody wants to hear a joke, they should just call me. And, and several people did call me and ask me to do comedy for them one-on-one over the phone. And so... I did this dog joke for a friend of mine. And anyway, this dog that I have, Alagoto Romagnolo, look it up. It's a very unusual dog. They look like a Labradoodle, but they're very not a Labradoodle. And they're Italian. They're this exotic Italian truffle hunting dog. And I'd never seen or heard of one before. And then Tuve or Tove got one and she put pictures online. She's like, oh, our puppy's been born. And she put these pictures. And these are the cutest dogs you've ever seen in your life. And for someone, I did not want to have another dog because my last dog was amazing, Bodie, the cattle dog. She was just the greatest companion you could ever have. And I loved her so much. And when she died, and she died a little younger than she needed to, but when she died, I decided I didn't want to have dogs anymore. I'm just like, they're too much to take care of. And the emotional toll was really too much on me when she died. Like, I really hadn't, I'd had my daughter back then and, or by then, and I just wasn't as active of a dog dad as I was when I got the dog. Like, I remember when I got Bodhi, I was I was like a woman who's afraid that her like biological clock is ticking and she needs to have children. That's how I was about having a dog. I found myself like strolling the dog aisles in Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and like looking at dog foods and looking at dog beds and just like by myself, just like walking slowly through the supermarket, like kind of wishing I had this dog and almost like I didn't do it, but I almost started buying things for dogs that I didn't own. That's how much I wanted a dog. And then I was online dating and I met this woman who told me about uh, this cattle dog rescue. And so even though uh, I didn't end up really hitting it off with a woman romantically, she did inadvertently introduce me to my dog. So I consider Bodhi to be my match.com success story. Anyway, I adopted this cattle dog. I, I found this guy and he said, I've got a perfect dog for you. You sound like the right guy for her. And so I'll loan her to you for the weekend and see how it goes. And within three hours, I called the guy. and was like, you're never getting this dog back. She is the greatest dog. Bodhi, uh, rest in peace. Your ashes are still in my house because I haven't had a chance to bring him back to California but um, you were one of the great loves of my life, Bodie. And now my new dog, Belle, who I adopted from this beautiful family in Connecticut, who had three kids and just couldn't handle a dog anymore. And they made a very difficult, but the right decision to let Belle have a better life in a different home that could handle her because she was very attached to the husband and the, who was the dad and he was working. And when he's not home, she just, she, when, when I'm not home, she paces the house and looks for me. And when he wasn't home, she would pace the house and look for him. And meanwhile, his wife had three kids, one of them a newborn, and they just 
Like it was just too much to Belle really lets you know when you're not giving her the life that she needs. And they were not giving her the life that she wanted and needed. And she was letting them know that. And so they made the really difficult decision to try and find a home for her. And through a long series of emails and legato romagnolo breeders, uh, well, this one in Arizona, I ended up getting an email saying, hey, there's one for adoption. This never happens. We're going to introduce you to the people. And sure enough, I ended up with this beautiful Lagoto Romagnolo because of Tove, because of deal. So do you understand why I had to tell you all that story? Like deal, really, it's the yoga eggs got me to deal, got me to Tove, got me to Lagoto Romagnolo. And now you had to hear a long story about Bodhi. So anyway... Um, I think that's enough <laughs> of an intro. I just, I didn't expect to go through all these uh, stories and down these rabbit holes, but dogs will do that to you. Um, it is coronavirus time right now and I am, it's really late at night. It's 1.30 in the morning and I hope I don't sound tired because I feel great because my body has no idea what time it is because I'm on this ridiculous, I don't have to work, my daughter's not in school schedule. And I'm working more than ever. I'm catching up on all this stuff, but I'm just awake at the wrong time of day. Like I went for a mountain bike ride today. I took Belle. She was exhausted when we were done. It's really good for her. She ran like 10 miles. She's amazing. And I used to take Bodhi, by the way. Uh, I actually broke Bodhi once on one of these rides. Like I took her on this long mountain bike ride. I think it was it was too hot or she was too old. I don't know what it was. Bodhi was, had a rough last couple of years. All I know is she laid down in the river and would not get up. And, and I was like, come on, come on, Bodie. And I rode back to the car only to realize she wasn't with me. So I had to ride all the way back down because I didn't know where she was because this was very unlike her. And she was lying in the river. So I had to walk into the river in all my bike gear and pick her up and hold, carry her over my shoulder and my bike. I had to walk my bike and carry my dog a quarter of a mile back to the car. And I'll tell you, a wet dog is very, very heavy. Anyway, I put her in the back of the truck and, and like I was so frustrated that I wanted to be mad at her, but I couldn't because she was hurt. I mean, she was just, she was, she couldn't move. Like Bodhi was the greatest dog in the world. If she could have moved, she would have moved and she could not. So poor thing. And I just, I really like, I felt like I broke her that day. Uh, I don't know if she was ever the same after that. And, but I mean, I don't think that was what did it to her. She had some health issues and this just exacerbated them or brought them all up. Anyway, that's a little bit sad. But that was a couple of years before she ultimately died. Anyway, I took Belle on a very similar ride today, but Belle's a champ. I'll tell you, she just like runs and runs and runs. And I have some great video footage of me riding down a trail that turned into a river and Belle is just galloping behind me in heaven, just loving it. And that's thanks to my friend Jake, who I went mountain biking with again today. So shout out to you, Jake. All right, this is the longest intro I've ever done, 15 minutes. That's way too long. I'm sorry. You shouldn't have to listen to all this. It's a long interview, too. Oh, man, I have you deserve better. I shouldn't do this to you. But I just had a lot to say. So listen, you're going to love this interview with Adil. And if you do, please go onto iTunes and rate and review the podcast. Please do that. I would really appreciate it. And please tell your friends about Learning to Fail and help us get this out there. I mean, I don't know how many people are listening to this podcast. I can guarantee you it's not enough. I mean, Rogan gets a million downloads of every episode. I'd be happy if I got a million downloads cumulatively over my lifetime. So do what you can do to help people listen, especially if you know anybody who's into yoga or science or meditation or any of that. 
uh, they will all benefit from this. But really, anyone you know who's into yoga, please direct them to listen to this podcast. I think it'll be really, uh, I think they'll really get into it. And even if you're not into yoga, I think you'll get into it too. So enjoy this podcast with Adil Pakivala. Rate and review Learning to Fail on uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are enjoying our podcast and you have a little money to spare and the coronavirus hasn't taken your job away, please go to our website and hit our donate button. And you can donate some money to the podcast. You can do it monthly or you can just do a big giant lump sum and or a tiny little bit of money. Uh, don't be ashamed. Like sometimes I won't donate to people's things because I'm like, I don't have enough money to make a difference. And I've decided whatever you donate, it makes a difference to that person. Like just showing them that you are willing to throw a little money at them for doing what they love. I can tell you from experience, it means a lot. So don't be afraid uh, to give what you can and don't be afraid to give nothing if you can't. Okay. I do not want you going broke just so I can record podcasts. I just want you to listen and love what I do and uh, write a review. All right. Happy listening. Here we go. It's me and Adil Palkivala. How's that? Oh, you sound beautiful. Okay. You have such a resonant voice. Thank you. Does that come from, is that, do you think that's just innate for your voice or does that come from years of practice? I know you used to, didn't you used to do like poetry? Opera singing. Opera, you were an opera singer? Mm -hmm. Get out. Mm -hmm. Many years. Really? Yeah, I, I trained with Adi Engineer, who was India's greatest uh, baritone. And what were you? Were you a baritone? Baritone. Is that why you trained with a baritone? No, it's because he was the best. He was astonishing. When he sang, it was like a velvet rock. Powerful. That's a great description. Yeah. It was amazing. And so were you, did you tour as an opera singer? Yeah. I mean, I, I've never heard of this. Not that I thought I knew everything about you, <laughs> but uh, I definitely didn't know that you were an opera singer. Sang lots of arias, sang in competitions, won many competitions in India, singing competitions. I was part of the Cantata Choir, which is from the Goethe Institute in Germany. So sang a lot in India, a lot. Wow. That's really cool. Did you travel as a as an opera singer? Did you travel did with not. the troupe? No, just I chose not. I did it just because I loved it. Mm -hmm. Have you? Are there other things that you've done just because you love them? I think just about everything. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I did my science because I loved it. Got my degree in that because I loved it. Uh, what else? Flower arrangement, I got my diploma in that, in the O'Hara school, just because I loved it. When you say flower arrangement, do you mean like the sacred, don't they, don't they build like um, these sacred designs out of flowers in India? Do you mean like that? Or you no, mean no, no, no. This was a very interesting, it was Diamond Talents competition. And uh, I applied, I was the only man to apply, only male to apply, and I think... 14 or 15 years old and I won the first prize and uh, so they gave me a scholarship to train under a Japanese teacher who was in India who was the head of the academy and I did the advanced course and graduated I mean I didn't even know that was a thing 
it's a very big thing in Japan. It's it's a science. It's an art. It's it's a big deal. So, do you still do that? I mean, do you I don't. like? I mean, in gardening, or are you like? I love to arrange flowers, but I don't have the time for it. So, okay, you gotta tell me about this. Like, what what is the art of Japanese flower arrangement? Is that a way to describe it, by the way? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are many schools. There's the Ohara school. There's the Ikebana school. There are many different schools, and it's all based on a fabulous science. It's very much like Vastu. You know how in India we have the science of placement? Right. It's like that with flowers. Know exactly where each flower goes, which is the prominent, which is the secondary, which is the tertiary, how they all coordinate and how they create an amazement. And an arrangement that you look at with amazement and go, wow. Are there... Okay. I feel like I, I hope I even know how to articulate these questions. Like, are there different kinds of arrangements that have different meanings? Like, like you know, different mandalas have different meanings. Is it sort of a Japanese, um, I don't want to say version or equivalent, but like a corollary to like a mandala? Is it... No, it's more designed for beauty and grace and for creating harmony in a space. Okay. So you look at a space and you decide where you're going to put the arrangement and then the arrangement has to create a flow so that when you watch it, you go, ah, oh, the whole room is enhanced. That's so crazy. Makes sense when you talk about it. I just... It was a two-year course. I mean, this is not simple stuff, yeah. And then you, and did you do anything with this degree? No, you just, just for just, fun. Just collected it. Just for fun. It's on your little. So what? What did you study in terms of science? I have my bachelor's in nuclear physics and optics. Nuclear physics and optics. Yeah. And do you use that? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I continue reading on it, so then I can use the concepts in yoga. Okay. Because yoga is very closely connected with subnuclear particles and the whole philosophy of, you know, the Bose particles or the bosons compared to the fermions and how that works with our mind and how we can control photons with our mind and how photons are primary particles that actually are the building blocks of matter and how yoga fits in with that whole philosophy. It's just magical. Well, how does it fit in? <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> yoga is about the way in which the universe works and how we, using our intention, our mind, our breath, our intention, our bodies, can either be in harmony with it and cause it to evolve or be in disharmony with it and cause it to devolve. So de-evolution is possible? It's happening around us right now. Hmm. The way in which we have treated our planet with such utter disrespect, the way in which we treat each other, we don't even have really sincere, cordial relationships, people using foul language everywhere, people... I mean, we have... We've become more of an animal than a human being. I, I definitely agree that we're in a we're living in a state of tremendous disharmony mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. 
Um, I remember I, I had a spiritual teacher for a long time and, uh, somebody asked him if devolving was a thing and his response was, first of all, he said that you could get different enlightened people in a room and ask them the same question. They'd all disagree. Absolutely. So that was one thing he said. So he said that, uh, everything's always evolving, but it's like water flowing down a river. Sometimes things get stuck in an eddy current for a while and, and maybe even swim back upstream a little bit. You know, the leaf might go back upstream, but eventually all water moves from the mountain down to the sea. So he didn't think anything was ever actually devolving, although there definitely are times where it feels that way. And, you know, and, and he was saying, you know, we're, we're in Kali Yuga right now. It's the age of ignorance. Exactly. And so it looks and feels pretty horrible. <laughs> so I think Sri Aurobindo explained it beautifully as a cyclical evolution where you go up, evolving then you go down then you go up again higher than the original up and then you go down oh, okay. so we have just about come to the bottom of the down <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 i don't like to get too political on this podcast but i'd say given our current president we are at a low <laughs> yes. he represents the bottom of the circle for sure yeah uh, yeah 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 i mean yeah, let's not go. It's so, it's so, it's so magnetic. That that kind of negativity is magnetic, and you know, even though I, I I'm gonna guess that you and I both share uh, a compatible political posture, <laughs> um, it's just tempting to talk about it. I don't want to, but it's like I, I can just feel myself how easy it is to to go there and and. Right. And, and how extremely negative it is and how easy it is to be drawn to that kind of negativity. That's why I don't get the newspaper and I don't have television because I don't want to get into that world. Unless I can change something, I don't want to know about it. I only focus on what I can be of use to, what I can change, what I can help, what I can assist. Well, that works really well for someone like you who's a benevolent person and a yoga teacher and you know but there's a lot of people who have ex would use exactly those words but or most of them um you know if it isn't i don't i don't want to be this idea of like i don't want to be exposed to it if it, it i don't want to know about it you know like if it's not serving my life i don't want to know about it I'm, I'm deliberately saying it differently but it's but there's a way in which like someone could speak in ignorance and not sound that different on the surface from what you said. But I, I have, I know you and I know that your, your, your place in the world is one of healing and progress and, and making the world better. But right. I think everybody thinks they're making the world better. I think the racists think they're making the world better. They're, they're they think that there's a superior race. It's theirs. And by, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hurting people who aren't of it, they think they're making the world better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are we going to do, man? <laughs> <laughs> we have to live our truth and leave the rest alone. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to continue to say... You, you can't change somebody's mind. You cannot. And you cannot force somebody to believe what you believe. 
So you present your viewpoint. If they accept it, well and good. If not, you move on. So is belief a function of mind? Absolutely. Okay. Faith may involve the heart as well, but belief is more in the mind. Yeah. What's the distinction between belief and faith? That's the one. So belief is what is stuck inside my head, and faith is the feeling I get in my heart. I see. Yeah. At least that's my definition. It may not be the correct one. It's how I define it. Yeah. Well, it's that. I like the delineation. I mean, it mm -hmm. makes sense. Does it resonates? I believe this. I have faith in this. I believe it because it's in my head. I have all the thoughts that have been put into my head by my parents, by my uncles, by my aunts, by television, by newspapers, by the media in general. All that makes up my beliefs. But my faith is that inner thing which connects me to God or to non-God, and I have faith in it. So are, would you use faith interchangeably with trust to a degree? Or is if that something else? If I don't else? have faith, I cannot have trust. Because I have to trust that something will happen because of my faith. So supposing I have faith in, see, the power of the mother. When I have that faith, then I can let go of wanting to make things happen and say, I trust you, mother, you take care of it. Which is similar to saying, I have faith in you. My mom, like, um, I like to complain about my mom a lot, but I do it to write to her as well as when she's <laughs> not in the room, so I feel like it's okay. But... When I was a kid, one of the things she did well was, you know, she would say, and I don't know if she believed this or not, and I don't know if she would remember doing it or not, <laughs> but she empowered me in this weird way by saying, you know, Jason, I trust your judgment. Even when I was too young to have good judgment, she would just say, I trust your judgment. You know, use your best judgment. I trust your judgment. Just, she said it to the point that I grew up trusting my judgment. Mm. And, you know, as a result, I... <laughs> I always think I'm right, but, <laughs> uh, but I mean, it's, it also like, it, it kind of created this, um, I want to say like almost like a reflex in me of, but reflex is kind of the wrong word for what I'm going to describe, but like I would, you know, I take a, take a, take a beat, take a pause, you know, mm. and then make a choice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I mean, in other ways I'm very impulsive, but I'm, in, I'm impulsive in kind of a, um, not exactly a planful way, but a not a thoughtless way. I'm not. I'm not mm -hmm. reckless. I understand. Like yeah. I think there's a distinction between being impulsive and being reckless. Or I want there to be one because <laughs> <laughs> impulsiveness is of the heart and recklessness is of the mind. <laughs> no, if, if you say so, I can, I can think of it that way. Yes, I can. I can. I, can yeah. I thought that was a fair parallel to faith yeah. and belief. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, it is. I want to hear more about how, uh, nuclear, did you say you studied nuclear energy and physics? Is that what you said? Nuclear physics and optics. Nu nuclear physics and optics. Okay. So first of all, what is optics? 
appreciates the study of light. Okay. So everything from lenses to photonics, all that. And you talked about photons in the context of nuclear. What did you call it, say? It nuclear physics. Why yeah. am I having such a hard time? <laughs> <laughs> photons yeah. are basically massless particles. Massless? They don't particles? have any mass, yeah. Okay. Oh, massless. Yeah. Ma- massless, okay. Without any weight, any yeah. mass. Sorry, yeah. And then you've got mass particles with mass. And then there's the question of, you know, whether it's got a spin one way or the spin the other way, and it's a quarter spin, all that stuff, which you don't really care about in real day-to-day life. But it's nice to know that the ancient world of yoga in the exploration of the universe came into contact with these particles the particle that is so small it can go through the earth they talk about huh? mm. now we know it's called the neutrino it's a particle that is so tiny that it does not make contact with any other particle except on extremely rare occasions and what's it called the neutrino 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 you say it like that's common knowledge. Like every, I never heard of neutrino in my entire life. Oh, really? That okay. sounds like a power bar. Oh, really? Yeah. No, no, no. Neutrino is a very, very famous. Well, obviously not a it's, particle. But it might be. I mean, I'm you know I'm an idiot. Like <laughs> I pride myself on my ignorance. So it takes several my, uh, light years of lead for a neutrino to make contact. And light lead, years of lead? Yeah, and lead is a very dense matter. Okay. So when you pass a neutrino through that, it won't even make contact for light years of lead that much. So it's a very, very, very small particle. Do you understand what I no, mean? No, I don't understand like what you mean. You're describing, you're describing a physical pro- object in terms of uh, distance. Okay. Aren't, aren't light so years a let, Let's look at it this way. Okay. So Please you have, dumb it down. Okay. You have a big room. Okay. Large room. Right. You have two people standing in it. Okay. You take a ball and throw it into the room. Okay. It's very unlikely that it's going to hit a person. Okay. Now, in a small room, you have 50 people. Okay. You take the same ball and throw it. It's very likely it's going to hit somebody. Right. Hmm? Okay. So it's the same way. The more space there is between items, the less it is likely that something that is in that space is going to bump into it. Got it. The smaller the item, the less likely it is going to bump into it either. Right. So if you have two or three people in a room and you take a massive beach ball and you throw it in the room, it's more likely it will bump into somebody. Right. But in that same room, if you take a marble and throw it, it's less likely it's going to bump into somebody. Right. So the neutrino particle is so small that it won't bump into any other particle, even if it were to go through a light year of lead. And a light year is a distance. So if you take lead, a tube of lead, or sorry, a brick of lead, that is as long as it takes light to travel one year. Right. And then you put a neutrino through it, it will not bump into a single particle. And lead is a very dense... Extremely. Extremely dense. Okay, and now I get it. Yeah. <laughs> now that you've destroyed it, it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what the ancients talked about. 
they had experience of this i can't remember the exact numbers but we have hundreds of thousands of neutrinos passing through our bodies every second because they are created by the sun and they move at the speed of light and you don't even feel it they never bump into us yeah they're just way too small yeah i didn't feel a thing <laughs> <laughs> Now there, go, there goes one now. There <laughs> <laughs> goes a million now. <laughs> yeah. I was t- I was telling my daughter the other night. We I was tucking her in, and and uh, she was saying it's cool because she's learning science in school, and and you know, and she mm-hmm. she's very taken with it. Uh-huh. She really she she every day she comes home and announces some other fact, and of course I've forgotten them, so I'm like, well, <laughs> I can't tell if she's remembered it right or not. You uh-huh. know, she's yet to talk about neutrinos though. But she was talking about atoms, and she said, that's the smallest particle. I was like, well, not really. Like, <laughs> atoms are made up of, you know, protons, neutrons, electrons, and, and there's actually mostly space in an atom. Mm-hmm. And I said, you're made of atoms that are mostly space, so you're mostly space. You think you're solid, but you're mostly space. Right. And then I put it, and I said, good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the distance is approximately that of a marble in the middle of a football field. The perimeter of the football field would be an electron. That's the space in an atom. The perimeter of the football field, field would be an electron. An electron. You mean so the orbit of an electron? The the distance, the comparable distance. Yeah. Is that of the center of a football field to the edge of a football field? if you were to take an atom and enlarge it that big. Okay. So the nucleus, which has neutrons and protons in it, and the uh, electron on the outside, it's that far away. Okay, There's right. Okay. That much space in an atom. I'm just going to have to tell you, you say things to me as if you think I know what I'm talking about. I'm so like, sorry. I know, I know what you're talking sorry. about. Like, So it's okay. And, and the concept that most people don't realize is how small an atom is. For example, there are more atoms in a grain of sand than there are leaves on all the trees in the world. Okay. <laughs> I knew we should have done this in the morning. <laughs> like it's nine o'clock at night and you're sharp as a tack and I'm like, what's a football field? <laughs> Okay, so I eat sunrise. That's why. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm off carbs. That's supposed to help. I think. I, actually, I think it's not helping. I think that you need carbs for brain fluid, right? No, I think. I think all the it's all slowing down. I'm just getting dumber by the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny. Um, I posted something on Facebook. I posted a picture of, like, I took five pictures at the supermarket, mm-hmm. just of all the junk food, mm-hmm. all the sugary junk food. I didn't even get into the potato chips, you know. And I just and I just posted, you know, it is no wonder we're so freaking fat mm-hmm. and dumb. <laughs> There's food called Dum Dums and Ding Dongs and Twinkies, you know, like nobody wants to be called any of those things, but we eat this awful food, <laughs> you know. That's funny. Yeah, and this guy and this guy wrote wrote to me. He's like, "That's really negative, man." And I love it when people call me negative. And and. Uh, he said, are you saying that you've never had sugar? And I just wrote back, I said, that's correct. I've never had anything sweet in my life. 
And I don't even like people who behave in ways that have synonyms for sweet. So I don't let nice people into my life. And I don't let kind people into my life. You know, and if I meet anybody who tries to do something that's, that is polite, I just say no. And I give them a saltine. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, everyone who knows me is laughing at it. But this poor guy probably thinks I'm serious. <laughs> but um, I'm amazed at how... I, I just looked... It just hit me. I don't know why it took 49 years to hit me, but there's food called ding-dongs. Like, that's what you got to be to eat that food. <laughs> it's so bad for you. I have no idea what that is. It's a like little chemical cake. Tastes delicious. It's fake chocolate and fake cream. And oh you know God. that beautiful cheesecake you had for dinner tonight? Uh-huh. It's like that, yeah. except awful. <laughs> so, and people eat it. It's amazing. Yeah, they, it's, they eat it all the time. Yeah. I mean, uh, and... <laughs> And then there's a little lollipops called Dum Dums. And I, I just, it's like they're telling us how little they think of us mm-hmm. as the consumers and we're buying it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, <laughs> that's why I thought Neutrino would make a great protein bar. <laughs> like, you have to be so intelligent to eat a Neutrino, oh, that's you funny. know, and it's going to go through your body without touching it. <laughs> I mean, the ad copy writes itself. <laughs> it's funny (laughs) okay so you were talking about the ancients recognizing in in pre-scientific ways i would imagine yeah through they didn't understand criticism yeah yeah they didn't understand the neutrino they hadn't broken down the, the atom yet absolutely but but yet they this is what i find amazing about the the ancients and particularly the yogis but it's a lot of i don't i'm not fluent enough in it to to speak about it intelligently but um, in Judaism, there's a lot of that stuff too. Uh, but just the, like how well they worked with the subtlest qualities of existence mm-hmm. without being able to really explain it scientifically. It's almost like the more capable we are of explaining it, the less harmoniously we live with it. Because we are now relying on instruments for our experience and not ourselves. What we are observing in our world today is not through our abilities, but through something we have made, an instrument. This is the same with doctors. Very few doctors will take your pulse and tell you what's wrong with you. They don't do it through their experience. They won't look at you and say, huh, your eyes are a little redder, your skin is a little off compared to what it was before. Let me see how pasty you look. Let me examine you on the outside through my senses to determine what's wrong with you. Let me palpate your belly. Let me use what I feel through my hand, through my eyes, through my touch to determine what is wrong with you. Now they just say, take a test. Right. Test you, test you. Instruments are telling the doctor what is wrong with you, not the doctor himself or herself. And that's the same thing in the rest of the world. We are relying on instruments for our experience rather than the experience itself. We don't even look at the stars with a telescope. You don't even see the light from the stars anymore. It's now all electronics. You see it on a TV screen. You go up, I was up there 
one of my students works at the telescopes in Hawaii on the Big Island at Mauna Kea. And I was look, looking forward to looking into a lens and seeing the stars. And there was no such thing. There were just TV screens. They point the telescope at a distant galaxy and then you see it on a screen. You don't see the actual light that is coming from that galaxy. So uh, we've moved so far away from our own senses experiencing the world that it is no wonder that we don't feel we have any connection with it. We have lost our connection. And so the ancients' experience was through their own connection with the world, through their tapasya, their own practice. Like Savitri can feel an earthquake about to happen half a world away. Because she can feel it in her body. We were in Hawaii, we were in the middle of a workshop and she says, oh, oh I can see something is wrong. We were actually uh, having dinner. And she says, I can see the particles in the air are shaking differently from usual. There must be an earthquake happening. And so she went back to her room to meditate on it. And within a few hours, the big earthquake happened and the tsunami came about. This is a few years ago. Wow. The one that hit India. Yeah. Yeah. So when your senses are so cultivated and so sharp, you are actually experiencing the world around you. Today we don't. We don't experience the world around us. An instrument experiences it and tells us what it saw. You know, the thing that, I, that hit me while you were talking about that is the more detached we feel from the world, the less responsible we feel for it and the less care we take of it. That's a very interesting way of looking at it, yeah. Well, I thought that's what you were going to say, but I, then I realized you weren't, so I let you finish. <laughs> but, but I mean, because earlier you were talking about how we're destroying the planet and everything, you know, and mm-hmm. and and then this instrumentationalization mm-hmm. of our relationship mm-hmm. with our environment. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the connection you feel with your own child mm-hmm. versus the connection you feel with kids in general. Yeah, I care about kids, but I'm going to, I feel connected to mine, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that, that abstract caring about is ultimately going to be different than the personal one. I see. But think about the connection that we are having now, even with our kids. So many parents connect with their kids via iPhones, via, uh, what is it called? That uh, uh, FaceTime? FaceTime. Yeah. Yeah. There's less and less physical connection. There's less and less physical eyeball-to-eyeball communication. And now our research is showing that the retina of your eye actually emits photons which travel to the retina of the other person's eye. So when you're physically in the presence of somebody and looking them in the eye, there's actual physical particles moving from your eye to their eye and back. Mm. And we're losing all this with the electronics here. You can't, it doesn't travel through the, <laughs> the fiber optics. I thought you were studying this stuff. It You're telling me a neutrino couldn't make it <laughs> through a FaceTime call and get in the person's eye? I don't believe it. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so sad what we've done to our world. You know, I had a moment the other night with my daughter. She, uh, I mean, you, you have a daughter who's in her 20s. Mine's mm-hmm. 10. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, 
you'll appreciate what I'm going to tell you looking back on it, you know, but like, I remember my daughter was three. She would come into her mom's in my room all the time, you know, and we just, and it would drive us nuts. We'd want to be asleep. And she, once she could get out of her bed, she got out of her bed, you know? Um, and we just kept saying, well, you know, she won't still be coming into our bed when she's in college. Like, <laughs> you know, like, um, anything, you know, she won't, when she was having trouble, she not, she didn't have a lot of trouble, but when she went, we went through a little bit of a backslide with the potty training and mm-hmm. her just like, you know, she won't be wearing diapers in college. We just, that was our thing. It was like in college. You exactly. Know? <laughs> and now in the last year, this, this year starting school, I, we kind of said, you know, cause even up until the end of last year, she would still come into our rooms at night. We don't live together anymore, but she'd come into my room, go in her mom's room. And, you know, in my room, I have a big bed. She would just, she, I didn't even always know when she crawled in. Usually I could, I heard her, but, <laughs> but her mom says she would, she'd sleep on top of her. <laughs> um, and this, and, and now she like, she's older and she doesn't want us to snuggle with her anymore, you know, at bedtime. Mm. She just wants, she's like, just rub my back for a couple minutes and then leave. And, mm. she, and she falls asleep on her own, which is appropriate. But the other night I got into bed with her and I snuggled with her. I was just like, um, is it okay with you? I want to, sn- I just, I feel like I need a snuggle, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. she's like, okay. You know, like she wasn't thrilled about it. She kept waking me up, poking me in the arm, poking me in the nose. <laughs> and, uh, it's like, daddy, I can't sleep. I'm like, I was asleep. <laughs> you know? And you know, that was a huge part of our bonding mm-hmm. together. I mean, mm-hmm. she's only with me half the time. So the time I have with her, I, I care a lot about it. And when we're awake, it's business. You know, she's got homework to do, guitar to practice, course, soccer, yeah. whatever, you know, dinner to make. There's just, there's a life to, to run. And so the only time that I got to kind of be with her mm-hmm. sort of silently was, you know, snuggling with her at night before she fell asleep and she would have trouble falling asleep on her own. Uh-huh. And that's over now. Of and course. I miss it, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and so the other night I kind of stole a snuggle and I passed out in her room and it was great. Mm. It was so good. That's lovely. Yeah. So, but I, God punished me. I went back to my room and it was up until three in the morning. Like I, could, <laughs> I, I ended up being a nap that I took between eight and nine o'clock mm. instead of going to bed early, which is what I needed. But, but, but my point around that is just how much we long for that connection. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So what brings you to Asheville? <laughs> Doing a workshop here on Purna Yoga at uh, a place here, Purna Yoga 828, Leticia Studio. How cool is it when you, I mean, hey, I don't like to use the word brand in what you're doing, but you sort of have this entity that is Purna, Purna Yoga. I'm going to mispronounce yes. it. I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher That's it. That's Purna Yoga. Yeah. Um, how cool is it? There's like Purna Yoga East, PY828. How does that feel that there's these studios opening up that are embodying your teachings from top to bottom? And It is very gratifying because the mission has to continue after I am gone. And so when studios open, as they have opened all over, that shows that uh, there are people who are truly committed to helping the world, to helping each other, to helping humankind. And that commitment is a commitment of somebody who really wants more light in the world, who wants more heaven on earth, who wants more blessings 
to come to humanity. And that's our yoga. It's not just stretching and uh, jumping up and down. It's being able to be of value to the earth and to humanity. So when another studio opens, and we just had about three of them open, uh, it is a very, very beautiful feeling that, ah, the mission continues. And I know that I will die, which is why I didn't call it Adil Yoga. So I wanted something that was really of lasting interest and value. Does uh, Purna have a meaning? Purna means complete. So we call it Purna Yoga because it's not just asana, it's not just pranayama, it's not just meditation, it's not just nutrition, it's not just philosophy, it's everything put together. And the term actually comes from our great teacher, Sri Aurobindo. So it's not my terminology. Mm. He called his yoga, Purna Yoga or Integral Yoga. Uh, what was the second word? Integral. Integral Yoga, okay. So the Integral Yoga was taken by Swami Satchitananda. When he went to Pondicherry, he liked the word. Ah. So he took it from Sri Aurobindo and then copyrighted it oh. in the US. So we took Purna Yoga, which was a Sanskrit version or equivalent of integral. How much Sanskrit do you know? Enough to know the names of the poses, enough to know the uh, sutra, but I cannot converse in it, not even to ask for a plate of jalebi. <laughs> <laughs> not even to ask for a ding dong. You can. <laughs> Yeah, not a masala dosa, nothing. Nothing. Not at all, no, 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 no. <laughs> and it's not a spoken language anymore anyway. Right. Only a few people really speak it. But there are people who are, who are scholars enough of Sanskrit that if anybody could talk back to them, they could talk. Like they, I, I'm they, sure they could. Yeah, there's a few. Not yeah. me here. Yeah. What do you think the value is? Like when you teach the postures... Do you call them by their Sanskrit name or by their English name? Always. always. I always call them by their Sanskrit name because the language has a vibration. Now, if I'm in a context where I know people don't know the name, then I will say, you know, Adhomukhashvanasana or downward facing dog. Right. Or I'll say, Dushirshasana, which is, of course, headstand. You know, that way. Yeah. Slowly bring, like, Getting the Teach them, vibration yeah. of the sound yeah. into the yoga. How important is vibration? I'm just going to leave it at that. How important is vibration? Uh, there is nothing without it. So it's about all important. Because everything is vibration. Every single thing. There's nothing that is not vibrating. Matter is just vibration. Everything is vibration. Absolutely everything. So that's why it matters to use the Sanskrit term. Because exactly. it wakes up the... like the. It, it feels like it wakes up some quality. Doesn't it? In, in the posture yeah. that, it, that it wouldn't... Absolutely. From English. Forward angle, side triangle poses. It's just, just a name. You say something like Parashvakonasana, 
there's an energy to it right and you feel that in your body and then the body responds very differently from side angle pose <laughs> <laughs> you know i used to um i remember when i had my crisis of faith as a jew i was in services and and uh i had two things that happened one I was at Shabbat dinner, just a Friday night dinner at a friend's house, and he's mm-hmm. fairly orthodox. He's he uh, he's a bookseller, and all kinds of books, but a rare bookseller. He's mm-hmm. famous all around the world, and but I just knew him as Eric, you know. <laughs> and uh, we were having dinner at his house one night, which anyone in the book world would be like, "You had dinner at Eric's house?" I'm like, "Yeah, all the time," you know. Um, and he was speaking Hebrew, or I thought he was speaking. He he would kind of ramble, and it was sort of like half Hebrew, half not. But he was so good at it you couldn't tell when he was faking it it was Uh. really funny um but he was basically speaking the language and and doing the prayers and he just it was sort of he would just sort of almost like almost like chanting almost like mantra but but also like with a certain flavor of a looseness to it you know Mm -hmm. but anyway when i when i heard him i just remember feeling like uh i was being transported in time five thousand years and and it was amazing. It was just amazing to to hear that. And then uh, a number of years later, I was in temple, and you know we would say the Hebrew, but then read the English out loud. And mm-hmm. once I knew what those prayers meant, I lost all interest in the in the religion. Like, you know, I why why? Oh, because there because it was like God, you're so great. I'm so pathetic. Please. Don't forget about me, you know. But is that a correct translation or is that just... Of the Hebrew? Probably, uh-huh. yeah. I mean, really? honestly, when I hear the, you know, like, the, it's it's pretty popular to do the, um, oh, what's it called? It's a, it's like a 40 verse, the Hanuman. Hanuman Chalisa. Yeah, Hanuman, mm-hmm. Hanuman Chalisa. Mm-hmm. I love it in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. But I was reading the translation, I was like, ah, same thing. <laughs> you know, like... I just don't, I don't know, maybe it's the, the heart unplugs and the head kicks in or there, there's something about not knowing what it means that I almost feel like I can get closer to it. Mm. Now, maybe that's because I'm projecting meaning onto it and I'm actually farther from it and I'm keeping the whole nature of duality alive. And this, <laughs> but there's something about like what, what you were saying when you said, even when you just sort of like let the words, I can't do it the way you did it, but you know, you just let the words flow out of your mouth of the mm-hmm. Sanskrit names for mm-hmm. the postures. And yeah, you can feel it. It has a shakti it to it. It has an essence to it. And you can yeah. feel that essence. And once you call it, you know, rotated, <laughs> side angle, whatever it is, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it becomes a technical term right. and it loses its soul. Agreed. Yeah. And, and that's sort of how I felt about, um, that's how I felt that day when it was, you know, when I kind of read the English and mm. actually read it, you know, I'd, I'd recited it mindlessly for years, mm-hmm. but I was like actually reading, I was like, I, I don't, I don't feel this way. I don't, I was thinking, I was reading it and I was thinking of God as being a parent. Mm. I'm like, if I was a parent, this is not how I'd feel about my child. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. not feel that I'm superior and they're inferior and that, <laughs> you know, and that I want them to be afraid of me and, 
conscious of their weakness all the time. Mm. You know, that I wouldn't, I want to empower my child. I mean, I want, I want, and I am a parent now and I'm, I have that opportunity to choose that, how, how to sculpt that relationship to a degree. Um, and it's important to me to empower my daughter without allowing her to be a spoiled brat. You know, there's that, there's that, of course, there's that line. Um, now, with something functional like yoga, at some point people do have to know how to do the pose. So, but you see, Iyengar didn't use English when I was growing up, mm. and I didn't know Sanskrit. It was not my language at all. My mother tongue was Gujarati, completely different language. So, I learned the postures from Iyengar in Sanskrit because he told us what the postures were. That's it. Right. So the name got associated with the action. And you were young. I was young, yeah. I mean, so you learned it as... I mean, did you even know he was speaking Sanskrit or just it was just a word? Like, did you identify it as it a different language? You were seven or something, right? Yeah, yeah, but I did identify it as a different language because by then I already spoke three or four, yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Of course you did, yeah. Yeah. In India, we speak many languages, yeah. That's so crazy. <laughs> We don't even speak different dialects in this country. I mean, there are different dialects, but we don't speak them. Like, we speak the one that we speak. Yeah, yeah. I used to read my daughter uh, books, and I'd read them one in a New York accent. I would, uh, like, you know, and at first she didn't like it. She's like, that's not how it goes, you know? And, and, then, and then she'd be like, read it in New York. Read it like this, you oh, know? Oh, that's sweet. It's really sweet. Yeah, it's really cute. I like to have, uh, my family's from New York, so I like her to have a sense of where she's from, mm. her, where her roots are from, and mm. part of that is through the accents, you Ooh. know, just being playful, like give her a flavor for it. I mean, we've also taken her to those places, but mm-hmm. but there's something about it, you know, when, when it's an intimate environment, she can actually hear it. Like in New York, she might not notice it, that everybody's talking that way. Right, yeah. She, she wouldn't notice it necessarily as being different in the same way as when her father does it, and that's not how he normally talks. Like that's a more... Dramatic like, shift. Yeah, it's a yeah. more dramatic shift, yeah. So, And also, the New York accent is not the, that uh, prominent in New York because there are so many accents. Right, that's right. That's yeah. a good point, yeah. yeah. It really is only prominent when you get outside the city. Uh-huh. And who's going there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, I, mean, I remember one day in New York, I was like, there are, there's more racial diversity in this subway car than there is in the entire city of Asheville. <laughs> Like, uh-huh. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible place. Have you spent much time there? Every year for the Yoga Journal Conference, I would go there for a few days. Oh, okay, right. Boy, I forgot about that. Yeah. That was that feels like another lifetime ago. <laughs> they don't even do those conferences anymore, The right? last one was this year. We went there earlier this year, and that's it. No more. I didn't know there was one this year. I there thought they stopped it years ago. Where was it? At the Hilton. Downtown. In New York? Downtown, yeah. But that's the last Yoga Journal conference period, or that's the last... So far. They're trying to regroup and uh, start conferences again, but uh, they're taking a break. Yeah, I think they lost their momentum. They got... um, They got sold to a big conglomerate, which is not really focused on yoga. Oh, that's true, too. Yeah. But I also felt like they were... um, I mean, for a while, they were the only game in town 
right? There were basically yoga journal conferences, and then there was the Midwest Yoga Conference, and that was pretty much it for a number of years. And there was Yoga Journal, that was the only yoga magazine, really, and you know, and then yoga became very popular all of a sudden, and then the sh- there was a huge shift in terms of like what people wanted from yoga. You're, you're going to hate everything I'm about to say, but um, <laughs> there's a huge shift, and and I think Wanderlust was the company that really caught that wave. They they got it. Not that they got what yoga is. They got what people wanted from yoga. And I they see. created these festivals. They, they were the first people, that, to my knowledge, to call it a festival instead of a conference. Mm. So rather than having people come who were serious about yoga to study with these teachers, they could only get at these conferences. They were going to party, you know, mm-hmm. to chant and to, to sweat and to dance and to, you know, eat healthy and just to be, you know... To live yogically for three days, uh, you know, mm, but it was yeah. a party. Yeah, we call it yogically, but yes. and yeah, I, oh, I, I'm aware. <laughs> well, I told you you're gonna hate it. I, and I, I mean, and when I said yogically, I meant it the way like they think it is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, we were talking at dinner about India. Yes, and I was sharing all my war stories from the Iyengar Institute. <laughs> Do you think the yoga there is more or less authentic than the yoga here? Where? India. In general? Yeah, I'm, I know it's a very broad question, but I'm hoping you'll give me a... Uh, it really depends upon where you go. Okay. Honestly, when students ask me, I would love to go to India to learn yoga, I'd say you get more out of yoga here than you would in India. Because uh, India is very specialized in yoga. That means if you go to the Bihar school, you'll get just one type of thing. If you go to the Bangalore school, you only get one type of thing. If you go to Varanasi, you'll get one type Mm. of thing. So uh, what they have specialized in is what you get. You don't get the whole picture of yoga at all. Whereas if they are going to our school, they're going to get exposure to so many different aspects of yoga. So they'll get a little bit of jnana yoga, bhakti yoga, karma yoga, hatha yoga. You know, they get the whole picture, which they will not get in India. Unless they stay there for a very long time and go travel from place to place. Eh? I remember hearing somebody talk recently about India and the idea and like that there's a guru in every village. Oh yeah. Yeah. Every village there's more than one there's more than one guru in every village. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> at least one. Every corner. Every corner. <laughs> and and that the I there was this idea that um you know, people would credit that person for having the answers, for having the knowledge. Correct. And that they, then you travel to a different village, different guru, same question, different answer. Yeah. And you go to another village, same question, different guru, different answer. And that as Westerners, we have a, that's frustrating for us. We're like, well, which one is right? But that he said, he, he said, this is a Westerner talking about India. He said, but the Indians, they kind of grow up with this 
experience that there's more than one answer. There's more than one reality. Like it's where the universe is multiple, made up of multiple realities, simultaneous realities, and they, they might be different. And that's very analogous to the difference between linear time and vertical time, right? So linear time, as we understand it, is one thing happening after the other, causing the next thing to happen, causing the next thing to happen, causing the next thing to happen. Right. Whereas vertical time is when you have, at one moment, several different choices for the plan to unfold. So at each point in time, you have almost infinite pathways. And depending upon which one you take, you open up that particular channel to go to the next one. But if you didn't and you took another path, it would open another pathway. So it's not as if one thing is destined what is destined is if you continue to live in karma, if you continue to live the way you've always lived, then the result is predetermined. Mm. But if you consciously make choices in every moment, then you are no longer ruled by fate or destiny. Then you are at every moment deciding which way your next moment is going to go. And that is vertical time. So there are infinite possibilities at every moment. And each one of them has its own possibilities. And each one of those has its own possibilities. And we don't even access that because we're just doing the same thing every day like a blooming rat on a treadmill. So, earlier you said something about, we were talking about faith and belief, and you mm -hmm. said something about living mm -hmm. your truth. Mm -hmm. And when I hear you say this thing about, you know, consciously making decisions, mm -hmm. I live in a town where everybody considers themselves conscious, and ev they consider everyone else of unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of talk, well, they consider them and their friends who think like them as being conscious. Mm -hmm. And then people don't think like them and they're not so conscious, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and I hear people talk all the time about, I have to live my truth. I have to live my truth. That's my truth. You can't take it away from me. It's my truth. And I hear that as being very, even more trapped in the wheel of karma in the path of karma than people who don't who are almost like instinctively moving through life. Now I could argue with my, I could argue with everything I just said, of course, but you know, when, when you throw out the idea of live consciously or consciously make decisions or I'm sorry, your wording is better than mine and I can't mm -hmm. repeat it um, as faithfully as I'd like to. my first thought is, yeah, but how conscious are these people really? Like the, the decisions that they think they're making consciously, mm -hmm. those are, aren't those pretty conditioned? Isn't that pretty conditioned consciousness that they're 
choosing from? The most important thing to remember in yoga is that it doesn't matter what anybody else does. It only matters what I do. So I have to decide for myself if I am truly in integrity with what I believe. Whether my innermost innermost beliefs are in synchronization with my words and actions. And if my thoughts and beliefs are in harmony with my words and actions, I am at peace. And doesn't matter what anybody else does. That's how racists think. They think mm-hmm. they're totally at peace with their their deepest held beliefs. Mm-hmm. And like they would, I think they could describe it exactly the way you just described it. But would you consider yourself a racist? Um, no, of no, course that, not. You know, so it doesn't matter what somebody else believes. I hear that part. I hear that part. <laughs> but if I don't talk about it, then we're done. <laughs> oh, we're having a conversation, and I'm and I, I'm I'm it's in my interest to crack open these different you know uh, cans that are in the cupboard. Uh-huh. And I mean, I don't, I mean, I'm fine with people living their lives in knowledge or ignorance. And I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm guilty of the same I mean, to a much lesser degree, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but, I was just, you're a teacher. It's your job to, I think. I would think that a part of your job is working with people's consciousness. Depending upon what you mean by working. You see, one of the elements of yoga is Swadhyaya. This is the process of constant self-reflection and self-examination. So anytime I have a belief, I have to constantly question myself whether this is a belief that is authentic to me. It's a process of non-stop inquiry. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Asking that question all the time. And then seeing, this is a decision I'm choosing to make. Is this a decision, decision that I really want to make? Is this a decision that is of service to my own spirit and to humanity? So, The closed-mindedness or blinkered vision is not part of yoga at all. So if I believe that I am right and everyone else is wrong and that my belief is the only belief, then I'm actually counter to the whole principle of yoga. And so when I make an event happen, when I speak, when I act, when I say those actions and words must be in harmony with my innermost thoughts and beliefs, those thoughts and beliefs are not ones that are flippantly placed there. Those are ones that are being examined, have been examined, and will continue to be examined. And that's Vadhyaya. Getting to know yourself on a day-to-day basis. It is the willingness 
to, to, to change what I believe is who I am because I suddenly realize that that was not who I was. This is not who I am. This is what I was told I am. And I have now got to reprogram myself. It's a very difficult path. And that is why the Upanishad says, walking on the path of yoga is like walking on a razor's edge. Because you have to examine yourself every moment and be willing to sacrifice what you were for what you could become. You ever get tired of teaching? Do I ever get tired of teaching? I would get tired of teaching if I taught the same thing. But I've never taught the same class twice in my whole life. Never taught the same workshop twice in my whole life. Yeah. So it is new. In fact, this morning as I was going in, I was reading the topic. It was the same topic that I've taught before. And I said, what am I going to teach? I don't know. The room is going to tell me what they need. On that topic, of course. Right. So I will not teach a different topic. That's out of integrity. But on that topic, you know, whether we're doing twists and back bends, or whether we are doing aligning the spine, or whether we're doing lower back pain, or whether we are doing uh, the topic we did yesterday. I was wishing you'd come to that lecture. It was I'm a sorry. very powerful lecture. I mean, people were in tears and... A lady brought her husband for the first time to a yoga lecture and he was going, yeah, yoga lecture. He sat there completely mesmerized and then at the end he told her, go buy that book he has written for me uh, because I want a separate copy just for me to read. Oh, nice. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And so it's that. I don't know what's going to happen in the yeah. room. So it's not that I get tired of teaching. I may get tired, <laughs> but not tired of teaching. Yeah. Traveling is getting to be a bit much now for me. I've traveled since I was 20 years old. Were you always traveling teaching yoga mm -hmm. from 20? Over 100,000 miles a year. Over sometimes 200,000. Wow. I have 2 million miles on United Airlines alone. You yeah. get to fly in the cockpit now? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was an interesting experience. I was flying Air India. Uh, how many years ago? Three or four years ago. And I was sitting up in front. And uh, the pilot came out and he said, Sir, are you Mr. Palkiwala? I said, yes. He said, I just read your name on the manifesto. Are you at all related to the Palkiwalas in Bombay? I said, yeah, I'm one of them. So he said, oh, you know Jahangir, he's my brother. He said, oh my God, I, my wife studies with him and I have taken classes with him. Come, come join me in the cockpit. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so I was right. <laughs> so I rode in the cockpit. It was, a, it was a long journey. It was a 15 or 16 hour flight. It was across the North Pole. And it was fascinating to be in that cockpit. I bet. In complete silence watching the stars rise because it went from daytime to nighttime. Right. And watching the continents and he was explaining to me what the continent is, where we are flying, how the ice mass moves and how the stars work. It was just a lovely experience because it's much more open than the regular seats in the back. Right, of course. You can see much more. And you're far away from the engine so you don't hear anything, right? No noise, yeah, no noise at all. 
it was a lovely experience he explained I, every single item in the cockpit on the whole screen what this does what this does he even turned off the automatic pilot to show me how the alarms turn on if that happens by mistake it was great that's, oh my gosh that's great <laughs> yeah. that's so that's amazing yeah. that's amazing that that they let anybody any passenger into the cockpit at yeah. this in this no, ridiculous we are very uh, prestigious family in india very 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 trusted i mean just, yeah i know but it's still yeah. i mean the yeah. but i said i'll come but can i bring my daughter and he said sure and she was sitting in business so i went to her i said see never going to the cockpit she says yeah <laughs> so you were in first class she was in business uh-huh. <laughs> and so we both where does your wife sit <laughs> no she was not she doesn't fly she doesn't, doesn't fly, fly. No. not ever very rarely very rarely she's too sensitive to be out in the world much so she just stays she stays at home mostly doing her work yeah and yeah. she teaches her yeah. classes i meant home like hometown hometown yeah absolutely yeah. Um, she's wonderful you have to tell her i said hello please i will do that she's yeah. delightful we have very funny facebook exchanges oh you do yeah she <laughs> facebook messages me i haven't heard from her in a while she used to send me all these she would just send me videos <laughs> and normally i just i don't like it when people do that like i don't mind if somebody has one video that they really think i'm going to like but i don't like it if somebody communicates with me exclusively by sending me videos of stuff. <laughs> like that's not communicating to me, uh-huh. you know. But with her I make an exception. Yeah. Like I can feel that it's like really from the heart with her and Absolutely. she and she really thinks it's going to mean something to me and it's just and and I realized that she's just it's just her sweetness. It is. When she does that. And once I kind of figured that out, then, you know, I was able to stop being such a jerk about it. <laughs> I could appreciate it. And yeah, uh, and I watched them. So I started watching them. And they were always good. They were never yeah. like a waste of time. I mean, right. not always the best use of time, <laughs> but never a waste of time. You know, she always, she had really good discernment. She's a sweetie. Yeah. Amazing woman. You guys have a fascinating relationship. I remember when I was there shooting your uh, yoga training. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, there was a pretty intense emotional, like when there were, there was that, I don't know what to call it. It wasn't a party, but it was like a, it was an evening event where you sort of an, acknowledged her as your spiritual teacher. Oh, and yeah. I mean, was that the first time that that, was that the time that that happened? I just no, happened no. to be there for it. Okay. I've always acknowledged her that way. Not Pub- always. Publicly like that? Oh yes. Oh yes. Okay. Cause it was, it was like. It was intense. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. She is she's way beyond amazing. What she has become from a young girl whom I met at the age of 18, the one and only girl I've ever touched or loved ever. And uh oh, she was in such distress having lost both her parents in an air crash. Uh, is that is that related to her not flying? No. Huh. Yeah. She cannot handle sounds and lights. Her sensitivity is so great. Yeah. Extremely extremely sensitive. She belongs in a cave. She's one of those She says I can understand why people would go into a cave and they get that open. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can too. I mean, it's like 
course, I remember someone explained to me that like, it's not a cave like you're thinking. It's not a dusty hole in a rock. <laughs> it's a pretty nice, like, you know, they trick it out. <laughs> it's a pimped out cave. <laughs> that would be a really funny reality show, Pimp My Cave. <laughs> but she, uh, she was driving even. In, during these experiences, she would start to drive. She was told, drive. You have to be present in the body and then she started to get experiences where the cars would disappear and she'd be driving through nothing matter and the universe would just be light flowing through her and she said okay yeah this is not safe yeah and so she stopped driving right. so now she doesn't drive yeah there's, there's a way in which feeling one with everything uh-huh. you can become one with everything <laughs> <laughs> we don't want yeah, that no, that's no, not, what it's, no, no, that's no, not no, the no. goal do you teach no, she went to Hawaii with you, though, right? Didn't she? Didn't she go to Hawaii with you recently, or no? Oh, no, she came to Italy. Italy, okay. That's because she had worked to do there for Mount Vesuvius. She works with the Earth all the time. Okay. And when she's called to go somewhere, then she'll go. But otherwise, she will not go anywhere. How does she do it? Like, what does she? I just imagine her like wearing a lead suit. <laughs> <laughs> so not even the neutrinos can get in between here and Italy. <laughs> she just focuses and does it. But she's very, very sensitive. Yeah. yeah. So any blinking lights she cannot handle, any loud sounds, she wears earplugs. I mean, Italy is all loud sounds. No, not where we were. Yeah. We were up in the mountains in Fondi. Completely quiet. This is a beautiful retreat. That's great. Yeah. Was it a a family? Did you bring yogis there when you say retreat? Okay. It was okay. We had a full house. She taught the meditations in the afternoon and I taught it in the morning. In an Iyengar school there. Oh, really? Which is called Yoga Centro Savitri, believe it or not. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. So you have an incredible history of Mr. Iyengar. I want you to tell the story, even though I know it, because the people listening aren't going to know it. Which one? Well, just how you how your family came to study with him, and mm. it's just it's 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 such an. I've told so many people your story. Really, I think it'd be good if they heard it from you once. Ah. <laughs> well, it's it's a very long story and very complex. I'm writing a book on it actually, oh. and uh, we've done a couple of chapters. Uh, because anger was so much a part of our life that we never thought that we would ever have to write about it. It was just like he was just a part of our life. Right. And he was always around. He came to stay with us. He had, we had breakfast on Sundays every week with him. He came over to our house because my father was a very famous uh, person in the city. And anger needed that, what shall we say, support. Okay. And so when Yehudi Menyun came, he came to our house to have dinner. Uh, it was always our house. When uh, anger left for Europe every year for one month, the going away party was at our house. And then we would all drive him to the airport and wave to him. Mm. And so he's just a part of the family. And Rama, his wife, was very close to my mother. And so they would just sit and talk for hours and hours in the room together. 
and the kids would be all running around now of course they're in their 70s but they were little kids in those days you know? uh so we grew up with anger and that's because my mother could not conceive she was an attorney and they tried to conceive for about 7 years and uh she just would not conceive and so she decided to consult a gynecologist and he said you'll never be able to conceive because your uterus is retroverted which means it has all the ligaments are torn it has fallen down she was doing a lot of gymnastics so mm. she tore her uterus out and uh, you will never conceive so she told that story to one of her co-devils at the bar in bombay mr barso taraporwala at the bar like the law bar or like the bar no uh lawyers practice at the bar okay yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean if you find that out you might be down at the bar <laughs> oh <laughs> No 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 she okay. just mentioned it. No 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 actually no she mentioned it to a doctor another gynecologist and he said why don't you try yoga. And she said what's yoga? I mean, like I uh, love that. I love an Indian person saying what's yoga. Yeah. yeah. Uh, remember that we are Parsis. So but you were lived in India. I only mean only for about 1200 years, yeah. Yeah, so you <laughs> I would imagine you'd heard of it. You'd have to be living in a real under a real rock. not to have heard of yoga but it's a completely different society the parsi world is it because we are like the jews of india right we have very small community we control all the banking the finance the everything and uh, so uh, we basically built modern industrial india okay and that's why we are called the jews of india I, and that, that that could be That could land as an anti-Semitic remark, but I'm not. I know that's not how you mean it. <laughs> the Jews yeah. are constantly being accused of running everything in this country, you know, in a oh, very yeah, negative the, way. It's the opposite. Yeah, because we built the country up from a very downtrodden country to an industrial mm. ability. I mean, we built the first steel plant. We built the first. You know, we built everything to make the country what it is today. So it was. A, it is actually a, something of praise. Yeah. I I know that you would never say anything like I'm just inside. Oh, I see. <laughs> I had to say it because it was inside, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> um uh yeah. but you know, when when an when a westerner says would have said they're the Jews of India, they wouldn't have meant it as a compliment. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, not necessarily. No, we have yeah. great respect for the Jews. In fact, I studied Israel in school and we really went through the whole process meeting the consul general and all that. Oh, wow. and uh, i go to israel to teach i've taught in jerusalem i've taught in uh, tel aviv i've taught in bethlehem I've oh rachel in, uh, has a her, rachel is now yeah. living there and yeah. she has a school and she keeps asking me to come i have to go there yeah, she day. loves you she's sweet yeah okay so so uh we were all parsis right and that is why we did not know about yoga we grew up in the zoroastrian faith so we did not even at home speak hindi Our native language was Gujarati, completely different, different script, different language, and so my native tongue is Gujarati, and then the second language I learned was English, and then of course I learned Hindi and then Marathi and then all the other languages. So, it's it was a completely different culture. We did not go to the Hindu temples; we went to our own fire temples, because we worshipped the fire as a symbol of purity. 
Isn't the Zoroastrian, am I yes. saying it right? Zoroastrian fire, like somebody brought actual fire from Iran. Iran, and Absolutely. they've been keeping it burning. They've been keeping it burning ever since, right? Yeah, of course. And that's oversimplification, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, the fire has to be Everything I'm going to say is an oversimplification. <laughs> <laughs> the fire is prayed upon every day. The prayers are a big deal in the Zoroastrian religion. And they're ancient, ancient prayers. So when you talked earlier about your Hebrew prayers, I was thinking about the Zoroastrian prayers. Mm. When you pray them, there is such an energy that comes into the room. When you look at the translation, you go, what is this nonsense? Okay, so you're, yeah. you know what I mean. And it's completely different. Yeah. Even on a sound screen, which was invented by a scientist, an uh, Indian scientist, Dr. Oh God, I forgot his name. Oh. There's actually a screen made of platinum in those days, long before computers even existed. Wow. Where... When you said a word, that sound was converted into an image on the screen. And it was very fascinating to watch that screen because when you emitted a foul word from your mouth, the screen gave actually dark colors. When you emitted a beautiful language, the screen was luminous. When they said prayers, whether they were from the Torah, or whether they were from the Zendavesta, uh, the screen created the most magically beautiful images. So the vibration of the words was actually creating beauty. Whereas the vibration of foul language or of low class language created ugliness. And this was all mechanical because there was no computers in those days, in the 40s. And so that is why the prayers are considered so, 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 so vital in the Zoroastrian faith. And so we grew up with that whole different mindset. So we were not part of the culture, mm. the Indian culture. And uh, it is thanks to yoga that I became a part of the Indian culture. Mm. And so my mother was told by this doctor, he should try yoga, she should try yoga. And so she was at the bar uh, <laughs> and uh, she was talking to another one of her lawyers. We call them co-devils. And uh, she said, you know, my doctor has said I should try yoga. The man she happened to be talking to was Barzo Tarapurwala, also a Parsi, who was co-authoring Light on Yoga oh. at that time with Iyengar. Yeah. Because Iyengar didn't know English, at least knew very little English. Yeah, I mean, to, to write a book... Mm, yeah, you, you got to know the language inside and out. Inside yeah. out. So uh, Tarapurwala helped him dramatically with that book. And so he said, you know, if there is only one teacher, it is Iyengar. And my mother said, oh, who, who, who? <laughs> Did he talk like that all he the time? Like, he talked like Oh my like gosh, it's excruciating. This. I had a, an aunt, Lucia, <laughs> who was from Russia. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about five times faster than she spoke. Jason, it's been so long since I've seen you. That's faster. Wow. So get her and that guy together. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, okay. Anyway. So he told 
her to go to anger give her the methodology and she went and she went up to him and said i'm here because the doctor said i can't conceive so he said uh, okay and she said well i also got to tell you about my other problems you know i've got asthma i said don't tell me any problems let's do yoga hmm and as she did the practice he told her what all her problems are he said oh so you have arthritis in your family you have this you have that she was really impressed how does he know that that was the genius of anger and uh, then he said to her if you want to conceive you have to bring your husband and he has to do yoga with you and what was the reason for that uh i can't guess his reason sorry i can't say what his reason was but i can guess it okay and that is when two people do yoga together there is again a flow of energy okay and he of course took care of my mother very very carefully and they both practiced with him together and at the end of the second year of practice yeah at the end of the second year she conceived and that was in 1957 yeah 1958 so she started in 1956 with hanga mm. so she is his oldest living student at the moment wow yeah and his oldest living teacher at the same time because she's 90 years old and she still teaches she teaches yeah Oh I don't I don't think I knew that piece of the Oh yeah she did just two classes a week and has for years. Oh that's so cool. I was just in India a couple of weeks ago and uh, she was teaching. I always thought <laughs> I knew that I, I mean I I I know pieces of the story but you're filling in a lot of pieces I didn't know and it's great. <laughs> I always when I tell you the story about your mom studying with Ayanger uh-huh. I always say you know he made her husband come too. Right. Because first of all, it was important for them as a couple, but secondly, if he was going to be responsible for her getting pregnant, he wanted <laughs> he didn't want anyone to think that they were alone in the room. <laughs> oh my yeah. god, anger. Oh, his integrity. Oh, I know. That, that's he there was never oh, an issue. Oh him. yeah, zero. Just absolutely zero. I mean, just uh, it's not even thinkable. Yeah. Same with me. I would not ever think of a woman in the room. I mean it's just it's yucky. It's not a question. When I was doing my yoga training, uh-huh. um I was still in a in a relationship with my daughter's mom. Uh-huh. And and I was out there in the yoga world, you know, going to these conferences and stuff and and um one of the things that was driven home with us was, you know, just do not get Don't even don't even get gray area with your students. No, not at all. And I got so good at being non-sexual with my students mm-hmm. that when I was single again and started dating again, I had to learn all over again how to actually relate to people that way. I mean, I was still had it at home with the woman I was already intimate with before I started teaching yoga, uh-huh. but um it was to the point that I taught in Vegas. Now granted this is Vegas. <laughs> um I taught a weekend in Vegas and somebody asked the person who hosted me if I was practicing brahmacharya <laughs> mm. because she thought I was celibate because I was so non-sexual in terms of mm. how I taught them, you know. And I would give hands-on adjustments to people, you mm-hmm. know. Um but 
I would do it in ways that were just just transmitted zero sexual energy. Of course. Um, well, of course, in the teaching environment, but out mm-hmm. in the social world, you're supposed to transmit enough to let the person know you might be interested in them. You know, like not in a gross way, but in a mm-hmm. in an open way. You know, and I suppose. And yeah. anyway, it was just funny. Like I had to. <laughs> it was. It, there were a couple of years there where it had done me a real disservice. Like I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know how to be a single guy anymore. You know, I only knew how to be super appropriate. Um. And uh, anyway, it was funny, but. Um. <laughs> Yeah, no, so there was nothing, no, zero sexual energy from anger. Yeah. I mean, just zero, nothing. The concept wouldn't even arise in him. It, it just, it's a weird concept, this yeah. Western concept of always sex, 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 sex. I mean, it's just... Well, it's not exclusively Western. I mean, the Indians created the Kama Sutra. I mean, there's... Yeah, that's not a Kama Western Sutra book. is a different concept. It is not one that I subscribe to. But the concept is that of pleasure being a way of connection with the divine. Hmm. So the sexual act was consummated to create something bigger than just the two of you and bring down a force. It wasn't purely for carnal pleasure. Hmm. Yeah. But I don't think, you're right, it's not just Western. No. Yeah. Uh, but the point is that Anger had that in him, right, just completely yeah. clean. I mean, he could touch you anywhere and you never felt anything right. at all. Just, in fact, many years later, we were talking and he was being severely criticized in the British newspapers. Mm. So he is a bank kick slap. He is, you know, BKS, a bank kick slap. He, oh, bank uh, kick slap, yeah. Uh, yeah. He is violent. He is this way. He's a really bad press. And uh, somebody had just sent an article to him. And we were looking at that article and there's all this horrible stuff about how anger is so violent. And he read it and then he said, you know why they say all these things? You know why they say I'm so violent, I'm so rude and I'm so loud and I'm so, (laughs) I hit everybody. You know why they say that? Because they have to say something and they cannot point a finger at my character. Hmm. What a great, wow. What a, what a, to be able to have that kind of um, patience and to respond in that way, mm-hmm. that's just, that's amazing to me. Yeah. I'm not there yet. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so to continue with yes, the story. Yes, please continue the story. Yeah. So anger, then, so my mother conceived after two years. And as soon as she conceived, uh, she was in the car with him and she was about to tell him. And he said, uh, you know, the good thing about yoga is if you practice religiously for three years, your entire circulation will change. Hmm. And she felt her heart sink. She said, uh, uh, but Mr. Anger, she used to call him Mr. Anger in those days. Mr. Anger, I just got pregnant and it's only been two years. <laughs> <laughs> so she was disappointed that it worked so quickly? <laughs> no, that it took three years for her blood circulation to change. But she got pregnant before her blood circulation changed okay, completely. Her, her, yeah. yeah, so. yeah. Oh my God, what will my child be like now? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. 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 You turned out all right. Yeah, it turned out all right. 
And the one thing about Ayengar was he never let her practice alone. He said, if you practice, I have to be there. And so whenever Ayengar was in town, which was every week, two days a week, my parents would go and he would watch her very carefully when he was practicing. He'd make adjustments, you know, move your leg this way, move your thigh this way, that way. And she delivered me. He had forbade her from practicing alone. She got pregnant again in two years. Anger was not in town. He was in Europe. Mm. She lost the baby. Did she practice? Or no. She didn't. She she obeyed. Absolutely. And not practicing alone. In fact, the first time when she got pregnant with me, she went to her doctor who was an Englishman, Dr. Right. Mutin. And <laughs> of course. Dr. Mutin said to her, do not do anything. You've just got pregnant. No, no, no exercise. exercise. Right. And she said, what about yoga? He said, if you do yoga, you will lose the baby. And you know, when a doctor tells you something like that, it's a little bit of a jolt. Yeah. Because you give a little bit of your power to the doctor. Of course. You, you want to be able to. Yeah. And trust him. Right. So then she went to Iyengar and said, Mr. Iyengar, my doctor said that if I do yoga, I will lose the baby. And Iyengar looked at her straight in the eye and said, if you don't do yoga, you will lose the baby. <laughs> <laughs> Your poor yeah. mom. <laughs> she trusted Iyengar. I know, but she just never to told the doctor that she was doing it. She did it. Yeah. She delivered me. She lost number two. Number three, when she was pregnant five years later, Iyengar was in town. I have a brother. She got pregnant two years after that. Seven years after me, Iyengar was in town. I have a third brother. So we have three brothers. That's... And then she said, now my body cannot handle it. So she had a complete hysterectomy and cleansing and bladder repair and all that stuff. It was a four-hour operation mm. by the top surgeons in India. That's so amazing. <laughs> so did you grow up in the studio? Like when she was working with your mom, when he was working with your mom, mm -hmm. were you there? I mean... Uh, from the age of three onwards. Age of three onwards. When I was three, I was enrolled in art classes. I also have uh, the <laughs> beginners. Don't tell me you have a degree in art. Not degree, <laughs> but I have the beginners and the intermediate art certificate. Yeah, uh, <laughs> is great. How does me. anybody? I mean, you did all this before you were twenty. Like <laughs> you have more than a lifetime's worth of certificates and degrees. <laughs> I think it's because we didn't have television. Ah, oh. so we never wasted time. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, my art class was downstairs. And it only lasted 45 minutes, or one hour, I think. Mm. And then I went upstairs where Anger was teaching my parents. And so I'd sit and watch until it was over. And so I started watching him at the age of three, sitting on the side. And then my mother kept saying, can he join? Anger would say, no, 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 no. And then... The year I was to turn seven, 1966, she said, uh, he said, yes, now he can join. What was magical about seven? He said the brain has not connected with the body enough 
that directions can be understood in the body before the age of seven. Hmm. So they can play, they can do anything they want, but they cannot receive instruction. That's interesting. Yeah. That makes total sense. I coached it. Uh, when my daughter was three, I coached her soccer team one year. And mm-hmm. I could not get those kids to. <laughs> they just they just want to take run of the ball and kick each other and kick the ball and you know, and uh, it was just like watching a, a swarm of bees move around the field, and and I've always been into like let's teach them some skills, um, but. Uh, Have you read the book Magical Child? No. By Joseph Chilton Pierce. No. Uh, Pierce points out very clearly that the. Human body works in seven-year matrices. The first matrix is seven, which is the mother matrix. The next matrix is another seven. So at the age of 14, another huge development happens. Then another seven. It's in these seven-year steps mm. that we evolve. And so anger was bang on when he said, don't start the teaching of yoga before the age of seven. That's fascinating. Yeah. There was a movie made. This guy, he would document these kids, and I think every seven years, really, he would, I don't know, film them for a while, and it kind of filmed their whole lives growing mm. up. Um, wow. And yeah, I think it was every seven years. And I think he started it. When was this book? When did this book come out? Joseph Chilton Pierce. Oh, must, it's it's a long time ago. Long time ago. So maybe must he read the book, the or maybe not. Seventies or eighties. Yeah. 80s, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It was interesting, though. Yeah. <laughs> so you started studying with him when you're seven. Yeah. And did you like it? Was it fun not for you? Not at all. No. Okay. I disliked it immensely <laughs> because I was the only child in the room. There are actually some videos of me. You've seen them online. Oh, yeah, I did see one yeah. where there's this little kid jumping yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was the only one young enough, young at that time, in the studio where Anger taught. And uh, it was on Saturday and Sunday, my days off. Oh. I had to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning on Saturday, go to this guy who was quite punishing. Mm. He did not treat me gently. Mm. He would sit on me and make me cry and he would push really? and he would pull. and Yeah, and very different from when my brother joined seven years later. When Sorry, five years later. Because uh, he, I think, saw that my brother already had a lot of flexibility. I was very stiff. Mm. And uh, Jahangir, my brother, was very supple. So he did not push or pull him much at all. But me, he pushed and I mean, really hard. Wow. And uh, this last uh, trip to India two weeks ago, one of the students who was there at the time, he was doing that to me, told me this story. Uh, I have to include this in my book. Her name is Dolly Pithawala. And... uh, She's now in eight years old. And she said that, you know, one day I was watching you in class and you were in Paschimuttanasana and, uh, 
and anger had just pushed you hard and your tears coming down your eyes and you were still holding the pose. And then from the back of the room, he shouted at you. He said, Hari, you're not straightening your legs. You're not pulling. Pull harder. Very, very loudly. And then we all looked at anger and he was smiling and he winked at us. <laughs> <laughs> gosh that's terrifying though like i'm amazed that you teach yoga after that which something must have shifted where was the shift at the age of 15 eight years later eight years of torture later uh in india you don't think of it as torture you think of somebody who's just trying to improve you uh a teacher is practically sacred Mm. and so you just do what your parents say. And parents said to go to yoga class. I went to yoga class. The rebellion that is there, even in my own daughter, we never had that in hmm. India. No. We just did what our parents said. And we so, I'm so grateful for it. But at the age of 15, my school, Bombay International School, asked me to teach my colleagues in school. And so I went to Iyengar and asked him, I said, they've asked me to teach may I teach? He said, yes, teach. Mm. So I started to teach. And the first day I'll never forget, I stood up in front of the room. I knew I knew everything. I was 15 years old. (laughs) And I, okay, everybody, please stand. And then I didn't know the word. I'd heard it for eight years, but I'd never said it. Tadasana? Tadasana, yeah. Uh I, I didn't know what to say. And Trikonasana, I'd heard it, but I'd never said it. So I didn't know, what, what is that? So I led them through the first practice, embarrassed the hell out of myself, went back home, opened up light on yoga, and that night, and the next day, and the next day, I memorized all the names of all the 200 poses. Wow. That's it, it's done. Oh, it was such a relief. Now I knew the names. <laughs> <laughs> But when you have to teach something, then you develop the link with it. Right. And then, of course, I went to college at St. Xavier's in Bombay, which is one of the finest colleges in India. And uh, they asked me to teach again there. The principal of the college called me up, Dr. Pereira. And uh, so I taught at the college. And word got out, and then uh, the Danis asked me to teach at their home. And then I started to actually make money. I mean, in India, significant money at that age. Right. At 19, 18, 19, I was making money teaching yoga You're while the, I was in the college. The first yoga teacher in history to make money. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I have a joke about, um, you know, my mom doesn't know I want to te- quit teaching yoga and become a comedian. And I said, it's because I'm tired of being poor. I'd rather be broke. <laughs> Okay, so that's amazing. We should start to wrap up. It is getting late. No, not a chance. (laughs) We can we can wrap up soon. Um, I was feeling that, but I just like, you know, I'm not gonna. I've been trying to sit down with you and have this conversation for four (laughs) years. So you know, uh, I just. um, I want to ask you 
what it was like being Parsi. Am I saying it right? Parsi. Parsi. Or Zoroastrian, yeah. Uh, or Zoroastrian in India. Because mm-hmm. you call, you, you sort of, you know, you, you uh, phrased it as being like, we're the Jews of India. Mm-hmm. Well, the Jews of America are, are uh, victims. <laughs> of a lot of uh, prejudice mm-hmm. and a lot of hatred all over the world, we're hated. We're amazing. We we alienate people wherever we go. They don't even like us in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> the um, two other people. <laughs> <laughs> the, the two Gentiles in Israel really hate the Jews. Uh, what was it like? Was there? Are the the Parsis or the Zoroastrians, are they looked up to or are they looked down upon? Are they accepted? Are they, mm-hmm. what's the relationship between your people, if I can say it that way, and India? Yeah. The story goes that when we first came to India a thousand something years ago, we landed in Gujarat which is a state on the western part of India. Okay. We came in through the Straits of Behran uh, by boat, trying to escape the Muslim sword. Okay. Because the Muslims wanted to convert us to Islam. And uh, we could not fight back enough, so we left. Okay. So we went by sea and landed in this port of Gujarat. And at that time, the king of Gujarat sent a message that his kingdom was so full, so overpopulated, right. that there was no space for anybody else. And the symbology was a large pitcher of milk. Saying, this is my kingdom. We don't have space for anybody else. And so our priest who landed took off his gold ring and dropped it into the pitcher and then took a spoon of sugar and dropped it into the pitcher, sending a message back saying, we will sweeten your milk and we will retain our identity. Mm. Because gold will not dissolve in the milk. Okay. And that was a promise that was kept. We did not intermarry. We only married amongst us. Because of that promise, for centuries... And uh, because we were from a different country, we had to work much harder. And we did. And we became extremely successful. We started trades with China. We started trades up north uh, through Afghanistan. And everywhere became became businessmen. Mm. And uh, there was some sort of philanthropy gene amongst the Parsis. And so we built hospitals, we built homes for the poor, we built these massive institutions that were charitable. And so the Indians really respected us, really respected us. In fact, the city of Bombay was built by the Parsis. Jamshedpur, which is the largest steel plant in India, built by the Parsis. And so we were never considered 
something uh, detrimental to the culture. We always considered something that actually helped mm. the culture very, very much. So there's a great respect for the Parsis. Another quality that was uh, admirable is honesty. Part of our religion is good thoughts, good words, and good deeds, right? Three things. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And uh, so we were extremely honest. And the British saw that. And so when they wanted to hire somebody, they hired Parsis. Mm. And we actually had a very good affiliation with the British in India. So much so that uh, at the time of the revolution, when India was going to be granted independence, I can't remember whether it was Mountbatten or somebody came up to Dr. Uh, to uh, Dadabai Navroji, who is considered the great-grandfather of India, who is a Parsi, and said, we would like to hand over the reins of government from the British to the Parsis to control all of India. Right. And he replied in his famous line, I'm an Indian first and a Parsi afterwards. Hmm. So he said no. Right, I, yeah. Yeah. I think that would not have sat well with the Indians who weren't Parsis. I, that I don't know. Yeah. But I do know that that spirit of India was part of our culture, even though we did not mix with the Indians. So in my family history, I am, as far as we know, the first person who married outside the Parsi religion. Mm. Yeah. How did your family feel about that? My family is very open-minded, but it was a little awkward. Very open-minded, but it was still awkward. My father was really concerned. What is, what is Savitri's background? Uh, she is Italian-American on her mother's side, and she is Indian on her father's side. So not Zoroastrian at all? No. Nowhere. Wow. No. Yeah. That's like me marrying a shiksa. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was, my father was really concerned. He said, I mean, what, how can you want to be with her? She does not love poetry, you love poetry. She does not like literature, you love literature. She does not like yoga, you love yoga. Uh, there's nothing, you don't speak the same language except English. You don't uh, have the same culture. Uh, you don't even live in the same country. <laughs> Where did she live? In the States. Oh, yeah. How did you, okay. <laughs> so he said, uh, you don't have any similar interests when we are together. We talk about poetry and literature and we talk about Samuel Johnson and Milton and Byron and Keats and Shakespeare. And, uh, what will you talk about when you're together? <laughs> he says, are you sure about this? I said, yeah, I'm in love. I mean, I, I don't care about the other stuff. Yeah. So I was in love. What did you talk about? I don't remember. <laughs> but we talked. <laughs> and how did, you, how did you meet her? If she lived in America. She lived in America. Her parents had come to Bombay. Her, his, her father was the head of the Jubail project. He was an engineer for Bechtel. Okay. Way, way up on the scale of engineers. And he headed the project of building the first city from scratch. Oh, wow. In the 70s. 
in Arabia, in uh, the Middle East. And it's called Jubail, which is now, of course, a huge flourishing city. And it's just desert. And so they hired Bechtel to build a whole city from scratch. And so he was the head of the entire project. And so he had gone there and he was living there. His brother was a very influential politician in India. Right. And he lived in Bombay, one floor above us in our apartment complex. Uh-huh. And uh, they had come to meet him, but he was not there. He was somewhere else. So they left Bombay to fly to meet him and the plane crashed. That's how they both died in Bombay. And so she came to Bombay to be with her uncle, with her sister. Savitri and her sister flew from America to Bombay to be with their father's brother, who lived okay. upstairs. Because they had to live. To live. Uh, they did not know what to do. Yeah. She was 17 at the time. Oof. So from America they came? Yeah. Because they had no other family here in America. Her mother had some fam- has family on the East Coast, but they were not familiar with them. So they had to go to see her father's brother. And they were living there in January. Feb- they died on January 1st. At that time, it was the largest air crash in aviation history. The 747. Emperor Ashoka was the name of the plane. And... Uh, it was a malfunctioning instrument and Boeing never accepted that and so she got nothing from Boeing for that crash. Mm. They blamed it on the pilot. See, the pilot was drunk and he was not. It was a huge cover-up. Because they didn't want to pay. Of course, yeah. yeah. So Boeing and the Indian government refused to take any responsibility at all for the crash. And now it's coming back, they're reinvestigating the crash. Really? Yeah. Saying that well, something is really wrong with this. How can so many, a uh, hundred and something people canceled their reservation before the flight took off? Word got to them that there was something wrong in the plane. And eyewitnesses who lived in Juhu on the beach saw the plane take off and blow up as if there was a bomb in the plane. It is, it's all a very big mystery, this plane crash where her parents were on. But anyway, she came to Bombay. Uh, she was living upstairs. So she stayed January, February, March. And then the beginning of April, she started to be coerced by her cousin, saying, you're just here all the time. Why don't you go and do some yoga downstairs? There's this lady, older lady. Your mom? My mom. <laughs> who is teaching it's a very beautiful, safe environment. So finally, Savitri decided yes. And so she came down. It so happened that that day, I was helping my mom teach the class. Uh. And she just walks into the room. And my mother came up to me. I was, I was bent over uh. helping somebody in Sarvangasan, uh, in Padmasan. So I was completely bent over. And my mother came up to me all the way, bent over with me and whispered in my ear, Look at the girl who's just walked into the room. She's the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. That is so great. And oh my God, she was a pure apparition. Yeah. So beautiful to look at. And with golden, hit golden hair at that time. Red gold, which went all the way down to her ankles. 
thick, thick hair. And it's just, it's just so radiant and so beautiful. It is deep love. Yeah. And you look at her, oh my God. And a few days later, I asked her out. And uh, that was April, like April 6th, when, she, when I first saw her. And then in June, I proposed to her. Wow. Marriage, yeah. Wow, broken all the rules. <laughs> a not arranged marriage with a not... <laughs> Non-Parsi. Not non-Parsi girl. Oh, but she I, didn't know, so I didn't take sweet. you for being such a rebel. <sighs> so sweet and so loving and this darling. She is terrific. I mean, I know. I really, uh, I really appreciate her. Mm, yeah, I really appreciate her. I, I appreciated how uh, welcoming she was of me when I was there. Yeah, yeah. she gave me the benefit of all doubts. Exactly. Yeah. She's a heart so wide it can hold the whole yeah. world. Yeah, she's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Well. I think you guys are doing something amazing for the world. And I, I, um, I mean, you and I met because of an ambassador for Lululemon. (laughs) She introduced (laughs) us and. Oh, was that it? Yeah. I was an ambassador for Lululemon for a couple of years, I think. Well, she, this woman was like, her job was a liaison with the ambassadors. Oh, I see. And when she met me and she loved the egg, she said, you know, meet me in San, come to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I met her in Florida at the yoga journal conference. Come to San Francisco. I'll introduce you to, I'll I'll figure out who to introduce you to and I'll choose the right people. It was Mm -hmm. you and, uh, Jason Crandall and, um, Julie Galmestad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you and I obviously have the relationship we have (laughs) very close. Uh, Jason and I are like buddies, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. and, uh, Julie said the eggs ended up in her closet and she <laughs> never looked at them again. She just didn't, you know, I met her. I took a class from her. She was wonderful. Uh, she said they, she just never, you know, had the time or took the time to figure them out or something. Um, but that's okay. I mean, you and Jason both embraced them and, um, you've got piles of your eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they're, in, they're in every Purna yoga studio as far as Absolutely, I know. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but that's that, I mean, that wasn't my point. I'm very grateful for that. Believe me. Um, I just think it's funny that that's how we met, you know, <laughs> like through Lululemon. Uh-huh. Otherwise, how I wouldn't have met you. I mean, you know, you'd have just been mm. another teacher who I wouldn't have known how to approach you. Yeah. Um, you approached me with a dark egg and I said, no. <laughs> that's not true. I approached you with blue eggs in a black bag. <laughs> I couldn't help it. They were in a black bag. No, you didn't say no at all. You said, I gave you these and, uh, and she introduced me and I said, you know, I said, my name's Jason and I created these and, and I would like to give them to you. And you said, and you would like me to use them for a while and tell you what I think. And I said, yeah, I said, no problem. I'll be happy. To. You were very, you, you understood it, but you were gracious about it. You know, you were not in any way, uh, I don't know. You, you were very gracious from the get. And, and, and I think I've told you this before, but when Georgia, my ex, my daughter's mom, when she met you in Florida, mm-hmm. um, and she used to go to these conferences with me and, and, and just, you know, be there, but not really mm-hmm. be in the booth too much or anything. And, mm-hmm. uh, when she met you, she said, he has all eight limbs. Oh, how sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, it was really sweet. She really liked you. So, mm. 
and I will let you go to bed. <laughs> um, this has been everything I could have hoped for and more. You're so sweet, Jason. It's Thank true. You. It's true. And and I have so much fun talking to you. And I know I talk to you in ways that nobody talks to you. Like, I just, you know, I just, uh, I don't know. I think of you as a bro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I, and I also acknowledge who you are in the world. And, you know, I, 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 um, I think I treat you better than I would a bro. But I, <laughs> but I think we have, um, we just have a really fun rapport and a fun relationship and, and, uh, I'll just never forget how mercilessly we teased each other during that 200 hour training. And it was so great. It was just so much fun. And it was clearly, it was never, there was never a stroke of meanness in it. No, of course not. But it was, but it was also like, you know, gloves off. Like, and actually that's another trait, a Parsi trait. We, absolutely love humor. Mm. So if you see two Parsis, no matter what they're talking about, they're laughing. No matter what they're talking about, whether it's business or whether it's finance or whether it's relationships, everything is funny. In fact, we took the Gujarati language and we changed it to make it funny. Oh, really? So the Gujaratis come to our plays, performances, just to laugh. And so that's That's a... When somebody laughs a lot, you can't be angry at them. And even when I go to stores, as soon as they see you, they know you're a Parsi because you have a different complexion, right. you have a different height, you know, we are taller, we are wider, we are more fair, and uh, we have a certain gait. And so as soon as they see a Parsi, they all change their temperament because they know they're going to laugh about something. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. so cool. So even just now when I was going shopping in Bombay, as soon as I walk into a store and start talking, they all cluster around because they're so happy to be with a Parsi because everybody's laughing <laughs> and we're so cracking funny. jokes all the time. Yeah. So, so there really is a lot of similarity between the Parsi culture and the Jewish culture, but it sounds like it is the opposite in terms of how those cultures are received by the cultures around them. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, and I don't mean to sound like victim complexy around it. I mean, I don't <laughs> care, you know, but, uh, I, it's funny, like I've started embracing my Jewish identity more since I started doing comedy. Mm. Um, I'm even doing an all Jewish comedy show in December, the first night of Hanukkah. All wow. Jewish comedians, yeah, um, here in Asheville, in the South. Oh, wonderful. You know, because um, mm. I, I just think it'll be fun and, you know, uh, and I'm not afraid of it. It's weird. One guy didn't want to be on it because he said he's been made fun of his whole life. He's been harassed his whole life for being Jewish. Mm. So he didn't want to be on a Jewish show and entertain non-Jews. And I was like, first of all, you entertain non-Jews all the time. <laughs> um, and secondly, you know, make it about them. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. this is your chance. Like, it's your chance to shine, too. Yeah. But he didn't want to do it. That's fine. I don't care. Uh, you know, it, but, but uh, that was interesting. You know what? What was interesting for me was uh, after that incident happened at Northwest Yoga Conference with Sabitri. Oh yeah, where she was, was treated awful. with such disrespect by Melissa, and there's been no response after that. We've tried contacting her; she refuses to communicate. After that, I began to look back at my time in America because I came here for the first time in 1980 
when yoga was not popular right i traveled every week city to city to city teaching teaching expanding anger's work teaching 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 i wrote article after article i must have written hundreds of articles over the years just to popularize yoga and as i was looking back i was thinking about all the times when yoga journal or other organizations would list the top teachers of the country half of them if not more would be my students but they'd never put me there really and i really i i never thought much about it until this incident and people started to talk about uh, discrimination mm it never occurred to me that there could be that in this world it just didn't occur to me and now i'm beginning to wonder huh how come they got all my students up there but they never mentioned me and they're all white that's so crazy yeah. but they use they yeah i was going to say they use you all the time i <laughs> there you go <laughs> um but actually uh, shiva and you know Sean Conn all these people right. would come up to me and say how come we are up there and you are not you're our teacher well that's nice that they notice it that's nice yeah yeah they probably don't offer you any part of their giant purse that they take for teaching at those conferences but uh that's fascinating yeah i don't i don't like to over identify with that negativity stuff and i think it's important to acknowledge it you know and just to like to just to see wow is that there you know yeah. i mean it's really their loss totally their but, loss but uh, but it's an interesting thought because really, it never crossed my mind yeah. until this incident yeah well that was horrible what happened up there i was i mean i i only know it from seeing the videos and stuff but i have yeah. had i had interactions with her that were not great um so Yeah. So I don't know about yeah. uh, not being accepted except in a different country. Right. So I think that we are very well received in India, but uh, I don't know if we were as well received as I thought I was being received in the western world by, by students who are not my students, by people who are not my students. Yeah. Right. I just don't know. It's just a thought that came to me. This country could be the greatest place on earth. Oh my god, the potential of America is unbelievable, yeah. unfathomable. It is it could be the greatest country ever in history. Yeah. So many resources, so much intelligence, so many cultures. Oh. If you could only be open-hearted. So, what did you think? Was it amazing? I thought it was amazing. I'm sorry. I I don't like to say this about my own stuff and it's not that I thought I was amazing. I just thought he was amazing. I just feel like that was one of the most beautiful conversations I've ever had in my life. It really was. Um Adil is so special and so kind and just so sweet. He has this incredible sweetness about him and and he takes some getting used to he does uh, i i didn't i remember when i first met him i didn't think he was real and the more i've known him he is more real than almost anybody i know 
Like, he is so genuinely himself. And he is in constant search of personal growth and teaching and just this amazing guy. And he has done so much for me. You need to know that Adil Palkivala has been one of the greatest contributors to whatever success my yoga company has had. And it hasn't been as successful as it deserves to be. Just like... Just like that family knew it was time to give me their Lagotto Romagnolo, it's time for me to hand over Three Minute Egg to someone who wants to make it great. Like I have run out of juice for this company. It's a great product and a great company and I've done all the legwork to get it ready and it deserves to have somebody take it over and make it worldwide. I mean, it's already all over the world, but not as bountifully as it should be. Anyway, the point is that I have had some success with the product in, and significant success in some ways. And a lot of it, a lot of it is attributable to a deal. He has embraced the egg. He even, uh, I went to a class that he taught at a yoga conference and it was either in DC or in California. I just don't remember which because it's the same conference. And some years it's in DC and some years it's in California. And I don't remember where I was when he said this, but I know that I went to his class and he introduced the eggs that he wanted to use and the new product, the Niobe. He wanted to use them in his class and he introduced them. And he has his egg with his name on it that he travels with because I did this whole signature egg series at one point and he was one of my first signature egg people. He was thrilled to do it. And they didn't get paid, by the way. Like, I didn't pay them. I gave them... What I did was I gave them a bunch of eggs and I think I gave them like 10% of the sales of eggs that had their name on it or something like that. It, it was nothing. Like it was, a, it, was a, it was a tip jar, you know? It was just a little gratitude, but it wasn't enough money that they were selling out by putting their name on it. Does that make sense? Like I didn't pay them enough money. I wanted it to be something that they did because they believed in it and that it would be a cool partnership and that we would, you know, sort of have this relationship. And Jason Crandall did it too and Joan White and uh and and someone else oh oh um oh my gosh i am forgetting her name annie carpenter a really great yoga teacher out of uh southern california so anyway those four people did signature eggs with me and then a couple of other people did branded eggs doesn't really matter adil pakivala is is one of the guys who really helped me uh grow my yoga company and really introduced it to people and when he taught this class that i went to not that long ago he said you know, so many people ask him to try his products and endorse his products, and he doesn't do it. He's like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not in this business to endorse things. He said, you know, they want me to put my name on their product. I don't do it. He said, I've never put my name on any product except one, Jason's egg. And then he introduced me to the class. It was the most, like, humbling and embarrassing experience of my life. I mean, embarrassing because I just, I didn't want to be called out that way. And it was a positive call out. But I just, I didn't, I'm not looking for that kind of attention in that way. I mean, I love doing comedy and I like being on stage. But even then, I, I, I don't like to be called out in an audience. I don't get mad about it. I just don't, I'm not someone who stands up and takes a bow and wants that attention. That's just not who I am. And so anyway, Adil did that to me. <laughs> uh, but really, he did it for me. And, and, and it was just an incredible thing to say. And that is just who he is. Like, that's what I want to drive home. Like, this is a guy, he can do what he wants and he cannot do what he doesn't want to do. And if he believes in something, he will dedicate himself to it, whether it's 
science or art or opera or yoga, or in my case, this yoga product that he found genuinely useful. And he took one look at it and he said, you know, this seems interesting. And then he just played with it for six months. And then I remember writing to him and said, you know, I was supposed to write to you five months ago and I just never did. And I just was curious, how do you like the eggs? He said, oh, we love them. And then I took another workshop from him and then we became friendly and then he did the whole signature egg thing and, and, and he actually wanted this one color, this teal color, which is very popular and I didn't want to make it. And we call it a deal teal. Now it's kind of a funny story because what happened was I'd come back from China. I had run completely out of product. I had sold out 100% of my product. I was at a yoga conference with no product to sell. And I had literally flown from my factory in China directly to Colorado and driven directly to Estes Park to this yoga conference with like a duffel bag filled with eggs that I took from the factory in China. I made them give me all these eggs. And they were just samples. They were eggs that didn't work out very well. They were all ugly and beat up and dirty. And I didn't care. It was all I had. And so I brought them to the yoga conference and I just used them as samples. And Adil said, you know, why don't we get these for the studio? And he turned to one of his assistants and said, have such and such call Jason and order, you know, a bundle of these or whatever he said. It's very sweet and funny about it. So just order, a, you know, I forget the word he used, but it was like a word that you'd use to describe a bunch of animals. Anyway, he said, let's order a bunch of these for the studio. And, and I said, what color do you want? I have blue, I have this or that. And he said, I want that one. And he pointed to this teal green egg that was on the floor, almost like in the garbage. You know, that's how little I thought of this color. And that's the one he wanted. He said, and I said, do you really want that? And he said, yes, it's the only one I want. And I will I will fill my studio with them. And so I was like, okay. And I, I got on the phone as soon as he walked away. And I emailed China and I said, you remember this color that I said I hated? Well, I want 2,000 of them. And they changed the order right then. And they sent me 2,000 teal eggs. And it's probably our second or third most popular color. I mean, purple is the most popular and then blue and teal tie for second. And it's just so crazy. I wouldn't even have the color if it wasn't for a deal. It just speaks to this like really amazing and fascinating relationship that he and I have had over the years. And... It's just this relationship where where he, I gave him a set of eggs and he has given me the world. I mean, he has done so much for me and he's never asked for anything. I mean, I went and I did that filming for him, and but I got paid for it, you know? I mean, I gave them a, a nice price and stuff, but it was still a chunk of change. Like, it was a big deal. I'm there for five weeks filming. Like, you know, it was still beneficial to me. Like, I'm the guy he turned to to do it. He is just such a giving, loving person. And, you know, I, I have the relationship that I have with him. Uh, I'm not officially his student. I don't live there. I'm sure if you get to know anybody well enough, it's challenging. And I've had a spiritual teacher, and I know how hard that relationship is. And and so I get that. And I just want to say that, like, because I don't want to sound like a groupie. I just want to say how much I genuinely love and respect this man and how much appreciation I have for him. He's really dedicated his life to something. He's really clear with his integrity. And he's been very, very good to me. And I have nothing but gratitude for him. Uh, Adil, if you're still listening, thank you for being the person you have been in my life. Uh, and if you've forgotten, I'll just remind you. Maybe I said this in the podcast. I don't remember. All I know is that when my ex, Georgia, met Adil, 
she turned to me after he walked away and she said, wow, he has all eight limbs, which refers to the eight limbs of yoga, which is a way of saying, like, wow, that's a fully evolved human being. And nobody's fully evolved, but Adil is pretty far along the way. And so, again, thank you, Adil. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing this interview, and thank you for being who you are to me in my life and just who you've been and who you continue to be. We still have a relationship. We're still friends. We tease each other. It's so much fun. Knowing you is a great part of my life. It's something I'm grateful for every day. So thank you, Adil. And thank you all for listening, and thank you for telling your friends about this and sharing this with your yoga world. I mean, this is unusual. Normally, I interview comedians, but I I was pretty clear when I decided to call this Learning to Fail that it was a way of opening it up to me to talk to anyone. And that's what I wanted. Even though that's probably not helping me build my audience, I don't really care. Like, I want an audience, but I want an audience that's going to trust me to bring them interesting interviews and not just be so limited as to care what the interviews are going to be about every time. And I know that's just probably not the best way to do things, but I don't care. I'm not good at making money. I'm not good at building businesses. I'm really good at creating interesting products, whether it's a painting or an egg or a podcast. I think this is a good podcast. And uh, I learned that. I'm good at making stuff. I'm bad at making money. So you know what? You can help me change that. You can go to our website and click on our donate button and send me some money so I can keep making podcasts without dipping into my daughter's college fund. Is that too much to ask? I don't know. But I thought that was a pretty clean segue, pretty clever. I try to be clever with my segues because, look, I am basically panhandling here. I'm asking for money. It's a, I, I made you listen to a podcast for two and a half hours, two hours of podcast and another half hour of me rambling and telling stories just so I could get you to click on the donate button and send me $9. I mean, there have got to be better ways to make a living than this, but this is what I want to do. This is it. Do you, can you hear in my voice how much I love this? I love it so much, and I love these conversations, and I consider it such a privilege to be able to sit down with these people and have their undivided attention for a couple hours and to talk to them and to get inside their mind and to bring that experience to you. Like, this is something that I hope I am giving to the world. I am doing it as an act of giving. But it's an expensive act of giving, and if you'd be willing to, you know, throw a few shekels my way, I wouldn't say no. But listen, don't make that the priority. It's not about the money. It's about engaging in interesting, intellectual, entertaining ideas. Like, I want those things to come together. I think it's okay to be entertaining, and I think it's very important to be intellectual, but not intellectual in one of those ways that you annoy everybody. I want to be intellectual in a way that I intrigue people and that my guests intrigue people and these conversations intrigue people. I want this to be something that when you hear it, you're like, oh, yeah, I want to know more about that. This is inspiring me to think of my own things and to, like, explore my own life and explore myself. That's what I want for you. But listen, do whatever you want with it. I don't care. I'm not going to dictate how you experience my podcast. All I'd like to say is if there's any episodes you haven't listened to, please go back and listen to them. They are timeless. These are most of these. There's a few that like, you know, we talk about some of what's going on in the world at that time. But by and large, these are evergreen podcasts, conversations with people who've had fascinating lives and telling the stories they don't normally tell. That's what I love about what I'm doing here. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Bruce Sales, for doing such a great job you're just continuing to make these things sound better and better and doing more and more of the work without me in post-production and it's so appreciated and you're so awesome 
you're so great at your job. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Adil, and have a good night.